Good morning. Welcome to Wake Up Carolina. Thursday morning, April the 6th, 843-661-0937 is our number. Good morning, Royal Rev of Radio. Good morning. So we're in the um in the in the second half of Holy Week. We're on first day of Masters, right? Yep. So um do you have a pick for the Masters? I mean, once again, I want to establish this. I'm not a big golf guy. I mean, I, I don't know much about golf. I, I played a little bit. Um, I stayed in the. I, I have this um, phobia. It's not a fear. It's a phobia of snakes. I mean, I really and truly do. <laughs> I'm convinced of that. I mean, it's uh, my wife laughs about it. How can you be as brave and courageous as you are and act the way you do when we encounter a snake? And I said, because I'm just scared. Uh, I'm just. I'm. I'm scared to death of snakes. So, so my. Um, love of the game of golf would probably be different. My feelings about the game of golf would probably be a little different, Rev, if I ever ended up in the fairway. But, but I hardly ever end up in the fairway. Therefore, I'm always looking around at these things with no shoulders that I fear um, so much. So I can't have fun playing golf because, damn it, I'm always in the rough and how I'm often, always looking for... How often do you really play golf? One one time a year. One time. One time a year. I, I normally get invited to a our good friends at Pepsi, uh, Les Ward has invited me several times to play in there. Uh, it, it's a chamber. I think it's sponsored by the Chamber of Commerce. And some of these companies have teams. And I've been asked, uh, and that's the only time. I've been asked a couple of times to play in these others. And I always come up with an excuse as to why I can't. Uh, my shoulder's hurting. Um, I've got something I have to do that day. Um, uh, I'm expecting the dog to eat my homework that day that you're asking me. Uh, whether I want to play golf or not, so so I'm not a big golf uh, golfer. Now I am a big fan uh, of the majors. I mean, I really sure. like um, the fact that the beauty of golf to me is, I mean, is there any honor left in the world? Golfers keep their own score. I mean, you sign the scorecard, you know, at the end of a round to validate, yeah, that's what I had. And when something weird happens, remember Dustin Johnson in the bunker and he grounded his club. And he didn't know if it was a bunker or not. And he grounded his club, and he thought he scored one thing. And he comes to the to you know, and some in, uh, what am I saying here? Not not inspector. That's not what it's called. A rules official. Yeah, officials. A rules yeah. official came along and and said, Dustin, that you grounded your club, and that was a bunker. And we there, there's some penalty that has to be um associated with that. And um and Dustin didn't argue. I mean, I don't think he was crazy about the decision. And it was kind of weird. You know, is it a bunker or is it kind of a um a place where people have walked over and over and over again. So there is some beauty in the fact that people get to keep their own score. I mean, there's not a score, so to speak. Um, what did you have on that hole? Uh, and then you say what you had. And, um, you know, your 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 competitors help enforce the rules. Um, is this a search and such a lie? Do I get such and such relief? And a rules officials in conjunction very often with a with a fellow player. So I, you know, there, there's a lot of beauty in that. And in a world that we don't have much faith or trust in, there is some degree of that left in in the game of golf. Now this year at the Masters will be the first major that includes the PGA players and the LIV players. I mean, I'm wrapping myself tomorrow as I go in a Saudi Arabia flag. I'm sure that'll be popular in, um, in Augusta National. When you talk about the elites of the elites. I know um, Phil may say, hey. Yeah, Phil or Dustin. Right. Uh, Dustin's a good Gamecock. Uh, well, he played at Coastal, but he, you know, he's a big Gamecock fan. If you watch Dustin Johnson when he opens his um, the book of which he, you know, the notes they keep. Mm -hmm. What am I trying? It's not the scored card, but the notes they keep on, you know, how far it is and what, you know, undulation it is. 
He's got a big gamecock on the front of his arm. I've seen that on the front of his eye, and I think they're trying to get him to give a bunch of money to the university. Um, not the golf team, but rather the, the football <laughs> team. That's how what pays the bill. But anyway, so, so I digress. Yeah. Um, who you like? I mean, at Augusta National this year, who do you like? Mm. I'm gonna say Rory. Mm. Going out on a limb, huh? I Ram? am. Huh? Yeah. I mean, okay. I That's- just am. I, I'm a fan of Justin Thomas too. Uh, well, you're really going out on a limb. I know. The two hottest players in the world, right? <laughs> yeah. Two of the better players in the right, world. Right, right. What, what happened to a um, Danny Willett? I mean, I was waiting for some unknown yeah, that comes out of right. nowhere. I, I'll say this. Phil's too old. Yeah, I mean, Phil's too old. Yeah, I mean, he, you know, he's, yeah. T- Tiger's too injured. The Tiger's been through it. You know, my, my Tiger, my thoughts about Tiger's is, I, I'm a fan of him. I know he's had his issues, but I've always been a fan. Now, stop he, there. I want to ask you a question. Yes. What, what is it about Tiger that, that make you a fan of? Are, are you a fan of Tiger or a great appreciator of his talent. I'm an appreciator of his talent. Okay. I mean, Tiger's he, a hard guy to be a fan of. Right, right. Because you know, I had I well, had to robotic. mention the issue. I mean, he's somewhat robotic. Am I right? Yeah. I mean, t- Tiger is somewhat of a. I mean, obviously, he's just, you know by 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 the by the measurements of majors, he would be the second greatest player to ever play the game. Nicholas would be the best to ever play the game. When Tiger was at his best, I don't know how good Jack was at his best. I mean, I'd have no idea. But when Tiger was at his best, it's a little bit like I'm a big NASCAR fan. There was a day in the 80s that if you gave me Bill Elliott, Dale Earnhardt, I'd give you the field. And I felt I had a 50-50 chance. Big track, little track, road, it didn't matter. You, I, mean, it, I mean, obviously, it would have been a bad bet from a percentages perspective, but there was something about the feeling you had. Okay, I've got the nine car and the three car. Talking like a race fan now. I've got the nine car and the three car. I'll take my chances. Now, now, I know that the odds were not in my favor, just as the odds wouldn't be in your favor, Rev, if you took Tiger against the field. But but at one point in his career, and at two or three years there, I mean, I felt like, give me Tiger. You could take everybody else. Right. And I think I've got as good a chance. And, and once again, I don't know how Jack was or how good Jack was at his best, but I can't imagine anybody ever being better at golf than Tiger Woods was for those two or three or four years that were just, I mean, that they, they were lights out. And, and, and mine is an appreciation because I'm a very, very casual golf viewer as you are. And I don't play at all. I couldn't tell you. I hadn't been on a golf course as a player probably for, for 20 years. That's how long, maybe 15. Uh, but I'm a, appreciative of his skill. And therefore, I just think he, when he plays a golf uh, game that I'm watching is so much better to watch. For he's, everybody, he's, I, he's good for the that's game. Just me. And there was he, he the one he won in was it 2019 when he had his comeback win at, at Augusta. I think he won everything there was in like 20 yeah 2019 to come back. Yeah. So that and this is this this is going to sound a little weird and funny, but the the Masters week we were having a very similar discussion on the air, and you asked me who I liked for the Masters for that weekend, and I was thinking to myself, I like Tiger. But he had been down and out, had a problem. Nobody really expected a comeback like that. So I said, I hadn't really been paying attention. I'm not picking anybody. But in in my heart, I was kind of picking Tiger. I didn't say it on the air when you asked me. And then he ended up winning. And I regretted for the next, you know, week or so. I was like, man, I wish I would just say what I was thinking. And uh, and I would have been, I would have looked, you know, like I knew what I was talking about. You look like a golfing genius. Some, um, Some guy that should be on the golf channel talking about the, um, the Masters. So it's a big week down south. I mean, I've said, I'll say before, I mean, I'll say again, to me, I mean, if we wanted to save the country, we introduced the people that run Augusta National 
to the people that run Chick-fil-A <laughs> and put them in charge of it. That's my annual uh, profession yeah. this time of the year. So, yeah, if we could find out exactly who it is running Augusta National, introduce them exactly to who it is running Chick-fil-A and put them in charge of every element of our federal government, I would stop making the uh, the, the proposal that my primary focus and, and job is to convince you to be less trusting, more suspicious of the motivations of your federal government. It's kind of unusual for anybody that's ever been. And I've got a buddy who's got some tickets. And um, and I've gone several times on his behalf. But it's, you know, when you, you turn down a road, Washington Road, I think, and there's a there's a Hooters, there's a Walmart, there's an Olive Garden. I mean, it's it's Main Street, USA, mm-hmm. right? I mean, it's, it's, a, um, it's a corridor off of a major interstate that looks just like every car. And then there's this little almost unknown gate that you see. And it's not huge and, and opulent. I mean, it's very, it's it's very small. I mean, it's it's a minor attraction. If you're riding down the road, it you can't miss the Olive Garden. <laughs> you can't miss the Target. You can't miss the McDonald's. You can't miss the the Bojangles. But if you aren't paying attention and aware of where you are, you could absolutely drive past the front gates to Augusta National. And when you turn, um, and they've got different parking premises, you can imagine. But when you turn. It's, it's just like another world. I mean, I, I can't explain it. For anybody that's been there, you know what I'm talking about. But you've got, you know, weeds knee high, and then you've got just the most manicured um, land you've ever seen in your life. I mean, it's like Disney meets. Uh, it's, just, it's hard to explain. And I always carry a kid. I mean, I got three and a wife. I mean, we, you know, we rotate as to who gets to go. And, um, and I always try to stress to them because I've tried to explain to my kids, you know, I put a lot into something, you'll get a lot out of something. I mean, that's, you know, I'm not saying life's fair or life's unfair. Guess what? Life is fair. Life is unfair. Sometimes on the same day. But but the majority of us invest heavily in things and we receive benefit from our, our you know, our instinctive investments. And, and I think when you go to Augusta and you see the, the Olive Gardens and you see the Walmarts and you see the, the Targets, it's, it's, uh, it's any town USA. But when you turn, I mean, there's something about the attitude that those people have who manage that ground and um, and know the world's looking. You know, you just said you're not a big golf fan. I right. said I'm not a big golf fan, but I will watch the majority of coverage on the Masters just because of its scenic beauty. Because mm-hmm. I don't know if Dustin Johnson should hit an 8-iron or a 9-iron. I don't have any idea. I know he hits it a long way. It's a lot better than I do. But they'll say, you know, crosswind and 160 on this line. I'm like, I don't know. The azaleas are real pretty, though. Let's, let's go to the phone, 843-661-0937. It's Breeze. Good morning. Hey, what's up, guys? You know, uh, I was talking with Polly yesterday. A couple of topics came up. But one thing that, that still gets me is that it seems like that the Republicans, say the problem I have is, is Ted Cruz and Jim Jordan and the rest of those guys, are they really with us? Or do they know all they have to do is talk like they're with us, but never have to do anything to be with us? Actually, you know, actually do something about all the things that they're complaining about. And, and I just don't know. I'm, I'm really at the point now where I'm trying to figure out, are all of them against people like us? And, you know, and then while we get tied up and um, things like, you know, Trump for these misdemeanors, then you turn around and you find out that the dollar is not going to be the world's currency anymore or is heading in that direction. And then I ask myself the question I always ask myself, 
why is that happening? And are they doing it on purpose? And if they are doing it on purpose, why are they doing it on purpose? And I don't mean to really blindside you with this, because this is this, the, the the dollar not being the world's currency anymore is really, really big. But being able to explain why it's really, really big and being able to explain why the, the dollar will no longer be the world's currency if we keep going on this trajectory, that's where you kind of start getting out of my uh, wheelhouse. But I was wondering what your uh, thoughts were on that, kid, or if you had a chance to study it yet. Thank you, Breeze. Appreciate it. I mean, I've always maintained that. I've got a bit here we'll play. It's longer than normal. I mean, Tucker really went into specifics and details about the decline of the dollar and, and the effect or impact that could have on global affairs. And, and I want to touch on that. I want to play that at some point in time at the 7 o'clock hour. I doubt we do it this hour. But in the 7 o'clock hour, I mean, Tucker articulates to a much larger audience than I do um, so, so some of the detailed problems that come along if indeed we're no longer uh the, the the preferred currency of the world and i think we're heading there i mean i don't think there's any any question i think we've made so many strategic blunders i think we've mismanaged i mean obviously we've mis mismanaged our country's financial affairs but i think combined with some of the um uh the the the, the status quo american imperialistic views and breeze i do i mean i've read a lot about it i've tried to understand it um, I have something at stake. I mean, I'm, I don't run Goldman Sachs. I don't run uh, BlackRock. I'm certainly not to that degree. I don't have a helicopter nor a yacht with a with a helipad, but I've been able to carve out a pretty decent life that requires America, the American dollar to maintain some status. Um, and I'm deeply concerned about where I think uh, where I think we're eventually eventually headed. I do want to go back one second, and I want to go down that road because I got Tucker teed up at seven. I want to go. I want. I really want to have a conversation about that. We'll, we'll recount some of the um the post mortem on the Trump indictment and arrest. Some other opinions are flowing in. Some other um legal narratives are being formulated about what happens here, what happens there. Drew McKissick, the SCGOP chairman and co-chair of the National Party will be with us at 8.05. Robert Cahaley of Trafalgar will be with us at about 8.30ish. So the 8 o'clock hour, we'll have two of the loudest, I guess, and proudest voices in the GOP at the national level about what they think the consequences of this are. But I want to go back. Rev, you got, who's your who's your pick in the, the Masters? We got to get that. Rory. Okay, you got Rory. I'm going to take DJ. Okay. I got to pull over the live guy. Okay. Because I like disruption. Yeah. I mean, you know that. Yep. I like a little bit of chaos. I think it's going to be funny to watch Masters. Well, I was going to say, how do they deal with that? What do, what do the PGA I, folks I gotta do? I got to believe this. I got to believe somebody with a green blazer, probably 160 years old, set, that somebody, some representative from LIV and PGA down said, look, you guys have a rivalry. That's fine. I mean, I understand. You, you don't think you were getting paid enough. You, you, you don't think you've been fairly treated by the PGA. Uh, the PGA is aggravated with the LIV because they feel like they're they're peeing on their cornflakes and they've been around forever today. These two factions of players are a little bit frustrated one with another. Um, but I can I can imagine um, the 170 year old man with a green jacket saying, "You ain't settling the score, Augusta." I mean, Augusta National is bigger than the PGA. Augusta National is bigger than the LIV. If the LIV has a problem with the PGA and the PGA has a problem with the LIV, you better settle that score somewhere other than Augusta National. But because that's not what we're about. We're not in it for that. We're not in the revenge. I mean, we're, we're not the WWE or MMA. I mean, they're just not. There's a prestige factor that goes along with Augusta National that they ain't going to let anybody mess around with or, or screw. Let's go out of the phone, then we'll take a break. Jam, good morning. 
Hey, good morning, fellas. Um, Ken, the first time I went to Augusta, it was about the mid-'80s, and we turned down, I think he says Washington Street or Road, and I said, man, we have got to be in the wrong place. I mean, there were so <laughs> many seedy hotels. I mean, there were no olive gardens at that time. It was all seedy hotels, and I went, this has got to be wrong. But to explain um, what you are trying to explain it's kind of like the scene in The Wizard of Oz when Dorothy goes from black and white into the color scene. That's about what it's like when you turn off Washington into Augusta. It's like going from black and white, um, you know, movie into a full color movie. Uh, Jam, I'm gonna uh, Jam, I'm gonna do this now, and and you're you're wide awake. I know you are. You get early up. Uh, uh, I get up early like I do. Your intrigue with golf is because of your father. Most definitely. Your father played golf at Wake Forest. That's correct. He uh, uh, another another Wake Forest golfer played with your father. He did, and his name was. Uh, that was Arnie Palmer. And, and your uh, father was a, a higher seed on the Wake Forest golf team than Arnold Palmer. Well, Dad was number one in his freshman year, and his uh, and then Palmer joined uh, his sophomore year, and. Uh, Dad was still number one, and then uh, at the end of the season, they started trading back one and two, and then uh, the third year, Palmer pretty much dominated. But um, their coach um, was um, was being interviewed in the newspaper one time, and he said, you know, I can't I can't ever play Arnie and Sonny Harris together. They uh, they try to outdrive each other instead of playing their um, opponent. And uh, they remain friends up till the very last. That's a good story. Wow. Thank you, Jam. Appreciate that, my man. Take care. Yeah, I, I knew that. I didn't want to put Jam on the spot there, but Jam's father played golf at Wake Forest at the same time Arnold Palmer did. Wow, great and, uh, story. Yeah, that, that's a great story. And actually held on to the number one spot at Wake Forest uh, while Palmer was there. I mean, he, Palmer eventually won out because, I mean, he's Arnold Palmer. He's one of the greatest golfers that has ever ever lived. But, um, I mean, Augusta National – to me, I mean, we, we talked earlier about it being the South and its tradition and history. And uh, it, to me, it's still the place. And I think Jam illustrated it well. When you turn down Washington Road, you, you'll look at your GPS like, there's no way. I, mean, I can't be at one of the most prestigious sporting events in all of mankind. And, you know, you keep blundering along and there's a Target and an Olive Garden and a Bojangles and a convenience store. And if you aren't careful, you'll miss the place. I mean, you really and truly will. But when you turn, I think, I think Jam... Uh, Jam gave a great analogy. It's like, you know, the Wizard of Oz goes from black and white to live and in living color. Take a break. We'll be back in just a few moments. You know, with the post-Celsius hour of Wake Up Carolina yesterday after the 9 o'clock hour, I, I've got this weird schedule now because of the podcasting. I go to the gym at a different time, and I need that energy, so I drink that Celsius, and my head's about to explode, and I'm ready to run a marathon and, and fight people and play golf and all those things that <laughs> – that people with a bunch of energy I uh, want to do. But, you know, I, I get really excited about certain things in, in politics and, and some of the macros that I think I understand because I've invested some degree of, um, of energy and, and, and not, not, not based in conservative or liberal orthodoxy. I mean, I'll assure you of that. The majority of my political inclinations are based in conservative ideology. I'm not a fan of government. I think government brings along... A, a uh, with, with it more problems than good. I mean, I didn't say let's drown government in the bathtub. Um, maybe a small lake would, would be better. Maybe a small um, uh, irrigation pond 
on a farm somewhere in Pamplico, um, I would be fine with that. But I, but I accept the responsibility that we've um, entrusted in government to some degree to do certain things. And I think we're going to be okay. I mean, I think it's a big deal in America when we arrest a president. I mean, I think it's a bigger deal in America when we arrest a president for a non-crime. I mean, I, I was reading some things um, last night. The um, A lot of the scholars believe, and I'm not talking about the MSNBC pundit. Stop with that. Or the NPR. Did you see what happened in NPR yesterday? I would never confuse uh, the MSNBC folks with scholars. But, but I mean, anyway, he, yeah, I saw what happened. Yeah, Elon Musk <laughs> declared, or Twitter declared, NPR so state-run media. <laughs> and they are po beyond belief. I mean, they went into this rant about you know objective journalism oh, and and trust and integrity and doing the right thing and elon but but elon actually um opined via twitter um sounds correct or sounds accurate that's what he said sounds accurate because they've always said npr has that they get two percent of their funding from the federal government but there are a lot of different ways that money is funneled to npr the national public radio um system i mean that says the government's a competitor in the marketplace of radio. I mean, in all honesty, so, so when people say, well, I heard this on NPR, uh, you, you can stop right there. I mean, you don't have to question what, where their politics lie. But because people who, I mean, it, it, some of their conversation is interesting, but, but their politics is totally biased. I mean, it's totally in the tank for government because that's who funds, to a certain degree, um, the operation that is a competitor in the marketplace of radio. I'm just glad they suck. You know, if they were good at it, we'd all have trouble. If you had a good, good product and, and good, good radio show host and you had the backing of the federal government, I mean, it's hard to deal with that. It's hard to defeat that um that dynamic duo, so well, to speak. Plus, they know how to what, talk sugary. Is that what you say? When well, I mean, it's, hey, hey, welcome to NPR. That's that's it. That's it. I mean, that's it. You know, we're, 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 we'll <laughs> let the other guys yell and scream and yes. combine words and make up things. And we're... You know, we're, we're the objective journalist in the room. No Southern accent yeah, here. No, 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 not at all. It's Midwestern. I mean, it's Midwestern and, and maybe a Northern accent, but we would never allow someone below the Mason-Dixon line to have any influence or say so on our airways because, once again, we're about integrity and and, uh, and ethics and journalistic. I thought that was so good, though. But, but Elon says that, uh, well, I mean, Twitter declared them state-run media. I mean, imagine that, guys. I mean, we're in America today, and we've actually got state-run media. I mean, the things that we're so critical of in other nations, we're quickly becoming, and about half the country okay with it. I mean, really and truly, uh, about half of the country are okay with, with socialism. I mean, they've decided that the, um, the competitive nature of the private sector is something they're not real enthusiastic about. It requires a certain bravado, bombast, aggressiveness, um, you know, uh, <coughs> wealth-seeking, uh, you know, motivated by prosperity. I mean, there are a lot of things in there that um, the organized uh, educational world has kind of uh, posed. I, I put something on Twitter yesterday because two people asked me yesterday at the gym, why do they hate Trump so much? I mean, what is it about this guy that people despise so much? And, um, and I started thinking about it. I mean, it, it can't be his policies. I mean, his policies aren't that far-fetched. I mean, what about Trump's policies are far-fetched? W- what about Trump's policies are totally offensive? I mean, to build the wall. You know, but he says some outlandish things. I'm going to build a wall and make make Mexico pay for it. Um, I mean, we we knew better than that. But but in essence, he was talking about indirect ways of influence the Mexican uh, economy so that in essence they would end up. I mean, it would be no different than another politician saying some of the outlandish things 
um, they say. But I began thinking about what what it is. I mean, if you've got the helicopter, the yacht, and the house in the Hamptons, I mean, you're worried about him upsetting the apple cart. I mean, you build a political ecosystem that has been unbelievably financially rewarding to you and yours. And I'm talking about the the CEO at BlackRock. I'm talking about the CEO at Pfizer. I'm talking about the um the um the credit swap trader on Wall Street. Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm not talking about people who go to work. I'm not talking about construction workers and I'm not talking about school teachers. I'm not talking about radio show hosts. I'm talking about those who have got real up close and cozy to the levers of power, but that's not a big universe. I mean, it's not 60 people, but it's not 60,000 people either. It's probably 10,000 people who have amassed the influence necessary uh, to end up on the good side of a helicopter and a 150 foot yacht. Um, it's, it's. It, it's not the, the heirs to Walmart. I was thinking about this the other day. I had a buddy went on a, um, a honeymoon, and he took a picture of a boat, and the boat was as big as the screen of the picture. And I said, wow, what a boat. And he said, that belongs to one of the Walton heirs. Well, I mean, you know, I get that model. I mean, they do, you do. I mean, you build a Walmart, you build two stoplights. Everybody in the world ends up yeah. at Walmart. So I get that business model. I mean, that's, that would be traditional commerce. But we've created economies now where, where you're going like, what did he do to end up with all that money? Um, well, he's in the credit swap business. The hell does that mean? He's in the credit swap business. Walmart sells bicycles. I mean, in groceries, I get that. Um, you know, this company paves roads. I mean, they've been in business 60 or 70 or 80 or hundred years. I get that. But what do these people do that have amassed all of these fortunes? Well, in essence, what they've done, Rev, is they have rigged the game to their advantage that they've taken their business model and they've integrated that into the policymaking side of government. And whether they deserve it or not, it comes out on the other end. And and when you look at the models, I mean, I've told my daughter this. I mean, she's she's um she's probably mature, more mature than most young women her age. Always has been a little bit grown up. Um, but but I, I've told her, uh, get in bed with government. I mean, find you a job. I mean, if you go to work, I mean, she wants to go to law school. If you go to law school and you end up a lawyer, find you some government agency to represent, uh, or find some company that is closely aligned with government. I'm fighting government, being obstructive to government, I'm being difficult for government to deal with is not lucrative. I mean, I can attest. I mean, it's simply not in your best interest to oppose the federal government. It's far better if you conform and go along and get along. But but if we do that, you, you have everybody depending on government to work a certain way. So, you know, a, a lot of a lot of what Trump has done in, in that way, Rev, has concerned and alarmed those people. I mean, if if you look at the most passionate anti-Trump voter, the majority of those people have a lot to lose if Trump does disrupt the the, the status quo. Uh, You got a business. You're making unbelievable amounts of money. And people are, what does he do? I mean, what what do they do? I don't know. But he's in Washington all the time. You know, they've got these eight, they got two offices in Washington. Um, I thought they were located in Daytona. Well, they were, but they relocated to Washington. They felt it was close or it made more sense to be, um, you know, close to the powers or, or the levers of power within our federal government. So, so you've got those people who, um, who oppose Trump because once again, they built the model. I mean, they understand, they know who has the keys to every liquor cabinet in, in DC proper. And they, they've amassed fortunes by not making the best widget, not being the best in the marketplace, but rather gaining government favor. You, you've got another group of people, and this is the ones that I think we, we can relate to a lot. Um, Trump is white. Trump's heterosexual. 
Trump is a, uh, you know, we'll, we'll go in his faith. I mean, he's done some questionable things here, but he, he professes to be a Christian. Um, Trump is bombastic. Trump is strong-willed. Trump is opinionated. Um, Trump is a lot of things. Trump eats a Big Mac. I mean, there, you know, when you look at the personality that is Donald Trump, well, America's being convinced that those are the things wrong with America. White, male, rich, obnoxious, um, strong-willed, opinionated, heterosexuals. I mean, they're, they're the ones that have, you know, kind of driven this this country in a particular direction. Not to mention businessman, capitalist. Sure, I mean, businessman, capitalist. There you go. I mean, all of those essentials that we celebrate. Um, I mean, I think I mean, arrogance doesn't bother me. Opinionated doesn't bother me. Strong-willed certainly doesn't bother me. Wealthy doesn't bother me. Um, heterosexual certainly doesn't bother me. But but he encapsulates all these ingredients that the left despises. I mean, they'd rather, I mean, you see what Bud, I mean, Budweiser, Anheuser-Busch is doing? Mm-hmm. I mean, they've hired, and Nike's now doing this. I mean, Nike's got a dude, you know, as their ambassador for some sports bra that they, they've um, they've introduced. When are we going to stop buying their crap? <laughs> I mean, really and truly, guys, let's, let's get complicated and sophisticated here for a second. When are we going to stop buying their crap? I'm sorry. I mean, if, if Bud Light, with all due respect, if Bud Light hires a, a transgender, a gender dysphoric, um, mentally ill person to be their chief spokesperson, why would a good old boy ever buy another Bud Light? I mean, in all right. honesty, think about that. I mean, I get, it's my brand, man. I'm not going to let some uh, gender dysphoric, you know, um, mentally ill person influence. I mean, Anheuser-Busch just basically spit in your face. They know how you feel about that. And I'm talking about the Trump voter. They know exactly how you feel about them hiring a gender dysphoric, mentally ill, um, grown man who likes to dress like a little girl. I mean, forget gender dysphoria. For forget mentally ill. It's a grown man who likes to dress like a little girl. And one of the major American corporations has decided that's who they want to be their spokesperson. And some guy will get off work at the construction site this afternoon and go buy a six-pack of Bud Light? Really? I mean, that's our fault. I mean, if, if, we, if we can't affect or influence the marketplace any more than that, or if we don't have a desire to affect or influence the marketplace any more than that, Nike has a dude modeling a sports bra. How many of you over the weekend will buy a Nike product? I mean, I'm serious. I'm, be, I'm not calling for a protest. I'm not calling for any sort of, um, uh, I mean, I, I'm not the one to do that. I mean, you've got to make your own decision. I'm not organizing anything on behalf of anybody. But as individual consumers with a certain belief system and set of values, why do you go buy the Nike? Why do you go buy um, the Bud Light? They don't believe you'll stop. I mean, obviously, if you're liberal and, and you don't like Trump because Trump is a manifestation of capitalism, and strong-willed and opinionated, and he's wide, and he's wealthy, and he's heterosexual, and he's got a pretty wife. All these things that we once revered in America, and now we're afraid of, and we want to really, you know, um, question some of those characteristics of people. Um, that, that's the, that's where the conflict is. I mean, it's a group of people who hate Trump, but they're perfectly fine with a dude being the model for a sports bra for Nike. They're perfectly fine with a grown man who likes to dress up like a little girl. I mean, that's mentally ill. But 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 Anheuser-Busch has done a lot of analysis. Nike's done a lot of analysis. And they don't believe 
that the 75 million people who voted for Donald Trump will stop buying Nike. They don't believe that the 75 million of you who voted for Donald Trump will stop drinking Bud Light. Because up until today, you've never demonstrated a willingness to. It's called the marketplace. I mean, that's what Nike cares about. Obviously, there's some social consciousness here and some societal awareness, and they want to be viewed and perceived as woke and enlightened and, and you know, above the, the, um, ah, the, the illiteracy and what am I trying to say? I don't want to say dumb. I mean, that, that's not a fair <laughs> word. The, um, the, the, the lack of sophistication that most of us Trump voters have, yeah. and it's a slap in your face. And they don't believe that you'll do anything about it. They believe that they can have, as their spokesperson, a dude, a grown man, who dresses like a little girl as their spokesperson. And when you get off work tomorrow afternoon and go buy your six or 12 pack of beer from Mickey Finn's, they believe that you'll still buy their product because you've never shown that you won't. 843-661-0937. Take a break back in just a few moments. You know, one of these days, Reggie and I are going down the road and Reggie determines the content. And I want to be very respectful of what he thinks is best for his business but one of these days, we're going to try to go down the road together of, you know, the declining dollar, the petrodollar, the petro one. Uh, I'm reading a lot now. And some of the most interesting commentary is a guy who says, we are at the dusk of the petrodollar, the dawn of the petro one. I've said four or five, uh, maybe six or seven years that once that began to become more mainstream and commonplace, once the talk began um, that the dollar is not going to always be the preferred currency of, uh, of global exchange and global market. Once the first energy transaction is made in a denomination other than the dollar, a currency other than the dollar, we would see uh, a, a dramatic shift. And I just think we've terribly played our hand. I think we spent money we don't have. Well, maybe we thought we could do it forever, but I think we're beginning. I mean, I've got some friends in Washington, and they'll tell me that there is – a lot more chatter. I mean, there's no debate. There's no policy. They don't know what to do. I mean, they ran up a tab. I mean, it'd be like going to a bar and giving the guy a debit card, knowing you've got a hundred dollars in the bank and buying everybody, every round of drink. And then the guy swipes your card at the end of the night on a $15,000 bar tab. And you act surprised that you don't have enough money to cover the tab. I mean, the, the, the insanity of that, I mean, it, it's criminal. I mean, in all honesty, to me, what Congress is doing, and spending the next generation, two, three, four, uh, money is criminal. I mean, it, I, I don't know what the crime is, but, but how can you be allowed to be a part of a legislative body that legislates the authority to spend a trillion dollars a year we don't have? I mean, that, that, once again, I don't know what the crime is. That There probably is not a crime, but there damn well should be. I mean, if you're an appropriator, if you're a legislator, if you're somebody responsible for managing the financial affairs of America, and you've allowed this scheme, this concocted scheme to perpetuate itself for as long as we have, there should be some criminality associated um, with that. Let's go to the phone. Someone's there. Charles in Lamar. Good morning. Good morning. You know, advertising people make a lot of money coming up with brilliant ideas, and sometimes those ideas don't make a whole lot of sense. I'm not sure why. Budweiser decided to change their slogan from real men of genius to women with a penis. But for some reason they did. <laughs> and uh, I think they're going to lose a uh, tremendous percentage 
of their business to people like me. I, I don't buy the stuff anyway, but I'm saying people like me uh, because of making this, this stupid move trying to appease three-tenths of one percent of the population. Um, maybe I'm not educated enough to understand how that makes sense. And if I had a degree uh, from Harvard or the Wharton School of Business, maybe I might understand how that makes sense. I do have a hypothetical for you, and it's a quick question. And this is just a hypothetical situation. But let's say a candidate decides to run for president of the United States, and that candidate finds a law firm, and they hire that law firm and contract with that law firm for seven figures to do op research on her opponent. And that law firm goes out and hires a retired MI6 agent from Britain, and he goes out and he interviews people, and he puts together this report that is full of salacious material, and there's so much stuff there that it's not even called a report, it's called a dossier. And he gets that dossier back to the political candidate, and she leaks it to Senator John McCain, who leaks it to the FBI, who spies on this candidate as a candidate, as president-elect, and as the new president in the White House. Everything in this dossier is either unverifiable or proven a lie, and this candidate pays the law firm seven figures and writes it off as a business expense. Oh, and by the way, she lives in New York. Is is that a crime? I'm just curious. Thank you, Charles. <laughs> well, I mean, that, that's an impossible hypothetical. That would never happen. Oh, no. I mean, Charles says he doesn't drink Bud Light. It's obviously he does at 7.15 <laughs> on Thursday morning. Um, I mean, great job of uh, recounting um, stage by stage, incrementally, procedurally, exactly what happened and how it happened. Um, I mean, it's, it's the double standard, guys. And, I mean, it, you know, it's, it's not even a double standard. I mean, it's become the Trump standard. I mean, there's a certain standard that is uh, allowed to um, to be normalized when going after after Trump and all these others skate. And I think more and more, more and more of us are beginning to become totally aware of. You know, I, I said it yesterday. I think the um, the girls in the office were asking about where I stood with DeSantis and Trump. I said I didn't know until yesterday. And I mean, if I had to vote today, there's no doubt. I mean, I'm, I'm Trump. I mean, there's no doubt. I'll let some things play out, and I'll give DeSantis a chance to try and win uh, my support. But but if I had to vote today with, with, as, with as strong a finger as imaginable, I would, ready, I'd mash that button for Donald Trump as hard as I ever have unapologetically. Now, I'm going to go to one thing Charles said, because this is interesting to me. Why would you... Um, why would you allow a gender, a gender dysphoric, mentally ill grown man who likes to dress like a little girl be your spokesperson and here's the key line from charles you ready to appease three-tenths of one percent of america's population i think it's more than that i mean i think the percentage of gender dysphoric people in america the people who profess to be gender nonconformist and gender neutral and and gender fluid i mean i think that's probably less than one half of one percent probably less than three-tenths of of one percent but, but how many people have been conditioned to defend someone's right to be gender dysphoric? Wow. Look, I mean, so some, some uh, business graduate from Stanford, some law graduate from Harvard, 
Look at the courage it takes for Bud Light to do what they're doing, to, to allow a person to be who they really feel they should be. I mean, that, that's where we are. It's not the three-tenths of 1%. It's how many of you out there have been convinced by indoctrination that this is to be normalized. That's the absurdity here, and that's kind of my celebrated. Well, I mean, that's, that, that, that's kind of my test balloon philosophy. I mean, that's my theory, and I really believe this. I think at times they they pitch things. Corporate American concert with the government. They pitch things out there to see how indoctrinated we become, how conformed we are. I mean, they told us to shut our business down and stay home, and we did it. They told you to inject um, experimental medication in your body, and a lot of people did it. I mean, there's some regret there. I mean, there's a lot of regret about shutting my business down. There's a lot of regret about not educating kids in their traditional fashion. You know, we put them in cages and bubbles and we kept them at home behind screens. And we'll, I mean, it'll take a generation to repair what we did. But, but I do believe that these test balloons are very intentional. I think they're very insightful for the people that wish to control the world. And, and when I say that at a tailgate, Reb, you know, 10 years ago, I was looked at, don't invite him ever again. I mean, he's a weirdo. I mean, he's one of those conspiracy theorists. He probably listens to Glenn Beck and then Limbaugh, and he probably watches Tucker Carlson. Well, I mean, guys, most of what we've argued has come to fruition. I mean, not everything. We're ahead of the curve at times. But but the majority of things we're kind of um, articulating have become to be reality. So when Charles says, why would Bud Light do this to appease three-tenths of 1%, what Bud Light is interested in is how many people in America today who aren't transgender, who aren't gender dysphoric, but have some sort of um, sympathetic understanding and acceptance that they, if they say they're born the wrong sex, well, I mean, my professor at Stanford said people are born the wrong sex. My, my law degree at Harvard says I can't be so exclusionary when it comes to believing X, Y, or Z. And that's the test balloon theory that I always, um, always throw out. And I believe that with every fiber of my being. I think there are things out there that, that are intended to shock and but but also intended to hey let's see how many people will continue to buy Bud Light even if Anheuser Busch allows a grown man who likes to dress like a little girl and says he's born of the wrong sex let's see how many construction workers will get off work tomorrow afternoon and go buy that six pack of Bud Light because they've that's what they've always done let's say, see how many um how many athletic types people who like to work out. Who, who, who know this is beyond the realm. It's beyond the pale of weird, but it's evil. It's concoction from hell. But how many of us will still go buy that Nike shirt or that Nike, um, uh, you know, workout attire or shoes? Uh, Nike golf, we were talking about golf earlier. Nike's big into golf, not quite as big as they were because the Tiger attire didn't sell as well as they thought it would. But, but you know, th- these are test balloons. These are testing out where society stands. So, yeah, I mean, there's less than one half of 1% who are gender dysphoric, gender nonconformist. But there are a lot of Americans now that have been convinced, indoctrinated to believe that this is normal. I mean, there's nothing normal about a grown man dressing like a little girl. And it's even more abnormal for one of the iconic international brands, especially beer. You know what I mean? I mean, wow. I mean, uh, men of genius. I think that's great what Charles came up with. Yeah. <laughs> is now all of a sudden women with penis. Uh, let's go to the phone. It rhymed. Uh, <laughs> Sam and Cross Hill. Good morning, Sam. Hey, good morning, fellas. Uh, I'm actually calling you from the great city of Darlington this morning. I'm down here for a day or two. But uh, anyway, uh, 
I had a period of my life when I did play, uh, I, I wouldn't say I played golf, I tried to play golf. And Ken, you know, I'm kind of like you. There, there are really all kind of courses on a golf course. Uh, I played the ones that were usually on the sides, up in the trees and in the water. And when I was in the water, the place looked like it was just full of fish. So I, I, I would rather, I thought, man, I'd rather be fishing. <laughs> and uh, then when I was uh, fishing, the fish weren't biting and said, man, I'd rather be golfing. So I wasn't too good at, at any of it. But I had the opportunity to go to, the, to Augusta a couple of times. And uh, you're absolutely right. For any golfer, uh, that's like a trip to Mecca. I would think a trip to Augusta and a trip to uh, St. Andrews would be on the bucket list. Uh, and uh, and I would say that if you want to see a lot of golf played, watch it on TV and just enjoy the uh, scenery around it. But if you want to really immerse yourself in the beauty of that place, uh, go go there and experience that. Um, I'm going to switch off a little bit. Talk, you're talking about these uh, these commercials. Um, uh, we had we had a place I worked. We hired a director of justice, equity, diversity, and inclusion. We call the we, we call it the, the Jedi Warrior. Anytime I hear those terms, it just makes me kind of my I get it like a sour tart in my mouth. But since we're in Holy Week, and I struggle with this a little bit when I'm sitting in church on Sunday morning, uh, could we not say that Jesus Christ was perhaps the first director of justice, equity, diversity, and inclusion? Aren't we sort of taught these things when we're in church on Sunday morning? I'll hang up. That's just some food for thought. And uh, as we head on into uh, the weekend, right. if you have a good trip to the Masters, uh, I don't think they'll let you take an umbrella in there, will you? Will they? I think you got to wear a poncho. I don't think you can take. Thanks, Sam. Appreciate it. Um, I, I don't know. I'll have to check the rules. It's a pretty funky place about what you can and cannot do. Um, you do it their way. I'll tell you that. I mean, you don't carry your cell phones. You don't carry cameras. I mean, you know, um, they're the boss of that joint. And uh, and they let you, they, they make that well known. And you're well aware uh, they run that place as they see fit and they choose. And there's a an unbelievable demand for people who want to, um, you know, go backstage, so to speak, at Augusta National. Take a break. Back in just a few moments. When is the last time the Masters was played on Easter weekend? I mean, that's kind of unusual. I mean, it, well, maybe, maybe it's not. Maybe it's unusual for me because I don't pay as close attention to the Masters as um as a lot of golf and aficionados. But down south, it's the beginning of spring. I mean, Masters week is always the beginning. It's not officially designated the beginning of spring. I understand that. But, but uh, you know, w when they play golf at Augusta is when you know spring mm -hmm. is right around the corner. And this week... It's Holy Week, so it's happening um, during another very prominent period of time in uh, in America. Uh, great Television Senior National Editor, White House Correspondent John Decker is with us. John, good morning. How are you, sir? I'm doing great, Ken. Hope you're doing well today. Having a good week as well. We are doing well. Nothing to talk about on talk radio. We've struggled <laughs> all week. I mean, yeah, Trump is oh, such a boring about. topic, especially when a, <laughs> when, when a Trump arrest happens. I mean, we've had nothing to do but hope and pray the phones ring. No, John, in all seriousness, you're, you're an attorney. You, you would be somebody who is far more familiar with the legalities and you're a White House correspondent. That makes you uniquely qualified to, to give a kind of an opinion on what exactly happened a couple of days ago in New York City. Well, if you want me to evaluate what the charges against the former president, I will tell you, looking at and reading through this indictment, to me it seems as if the indictment's incomplete. Uh, it lacks specificity, uh, and that's a problem, and it's a problem that will need to be corrected. I would imagine that the lawyers representing 
the former president will uh, submit a motion ordering the DA's office to provide more specificity. Specifically, the problem is this. There are 34 felonies falsifying business records in order to further another crime. And in this entire indictment, we don't know what that other crime is. And most importantly, the lawyers representing the former president don't know what that other crime is. How can you successfully prepare to defend your client if you don't know exactly what the charge is against your client? So, I mean, I want to play radio show host for a second. It's obviously politically motivated. How do you respond to that? I don't know because I can't get in the head of the Manhattan DA's office. Uh, He responded to that question uh, during his post-arraignment news conference by saying this is a case that they've brought against other uh, New Yorkers and it and Donald Trump should be treated like just anyone else uh, who uh, comes before his office. So that's the answer that he's given. You can evaluate as a talk show host. Uh, anybody who's a, a citizen can evaluate that statement for that matter. Uh, but the fact is, he is, he being Donald Trump, is now uh, a criminal defendant. Uh, he must uh, obviously next go to a pretrial hearing in December of this year. And if a trial happens, it will likely happen in 2024, a smack dab right in the middle of a presidential campaign, uh, in the middle of the primary season, which I'm sure he's not relishing. That's not a good thing if you're running for president. But, but, but John, it seems, that, and I'm asking to give more opinion than, than, than context, that's probably unfair to you, but, but I, I think it forces us to have this conversation. It's, it's real to me. And I've got some friends, and I think you'd be interested in hearing this, out here in, in, in regular land. I've got some friends, and they were torn between DeSantis and Trump. They're Republicans. They're going to vote for right. the Republican nominee. And they were torn sure. between DeSantis and Trump. And even Nikki Haley, having been from South Carolina, they are 1,000% in Trump's corner now. I mean, what, what do we – I mean, a, a president gets indicted for a crime. He's going to face a, yes. a, you know, a, a trial, and it seems to have made him more popular – Maybe not with independents and Democrats, obviously, but with people within his party. I mean, that, that's uh, it's not a conundrum, but it's very unusual for that to be the reality. Well, it's unusual. You know, maybe Ron DeSantis and Nikki Haley ought to go out and get themselves arrested. <laughs> <You know? laughs> maybe, maybe that'll help their campaign. Uh, look, I, I, I think that you hit on a key, uh, a key issue here uh, for Donald Trump, and, and that is, uh, okay, he solidified his place as the the front runner for the Republican nomination. There is no question about that. But that's not the big prize. The big prize is the White House. And the big question is, if you are someone who voted against Donald Trump in 2020, does this indictment make you more likely to vote for him in 2024? That's the big question, because that answers everything in terms of the way that 20. 20- 24 will play itself out if Donald Trump is the nominee. Do people in the Beltway understand the connection Trump has made with a universe of political misfits? Oh, I think they do in this sense. For those uh, like myself that travel around the country, that have traveled with former President Trump, that have been to well over a dozen campaign rallies, and, and I'm in that category, you see it for yourself. You know, you, you see it for yourself. I mean, I, I, I can't tell you how it's an eye-opener to travel with former President Trump, not just to a rally, but to an event in a particular town, and you get out 
uh, and you get in the motorcade and you see both sides of the roadway lined with Trump supporters, you can't, I can't believe it. I'm like, wow, this is remarkable. I remember a trip in Maine uh, in 2020 in which the former president was visiting a PPE uh, factory. Uh, and think about what that. I mean, that, that sounds like it's a million years ago. But both sides of this small town, it was as if everybody in this town came out to support former President Trump at the time he was president. And if you've done that, uh, it's an eye opener and it gives you a sense about uh, it. You can't live in this bubble in Washington, D.C. You have to get out in the rest of the country. Uh, you have to get out to, to foreign South Carolina and see it for yourself. Let's touch on one last issue, and that is his uh, vice president, Mike Pence, is now going to testify. What is the the blood and guts, in essence, of that of that uh, Pence testifying uh, as a legal and political matter? Okay, I will tell you something that you probably will not hear from anywhere else. I don't think it's a big deal, and this is the reason I say that uh, because Mike Pence has written a book. Mike Pence has done a ton of interviews, some very prominent on very large uh, broadcast and cable outlets, in which he has essentially said already uh, what the communications were between himself and Donald Trump in the days and weeks leading up to January 6th. So that's what he will be testifying to before this grand jury that's impaneled here in Washington, D.C. Yes, it's going to be sworn testimony. Yes, it's going to be under oath. But I don't think it's going to be any different uh, from what he's already said publicly about those conversations. I don't think there's going to be some big bombshell that he's going to drop in the grand jury that he hasn't dropped already in his book or in an interview that he may have done on Face the Nation. So to me, I don't think it's as big of a deal as a lot of people are making out of this. Very well explained. John, thank you for your time. Have a great weekend, and we will talk next week. I look forward to it. Thanks again, Ken. Have a great week. Have a good holiday weekend, and we'll talk next week for sure. Thank you very much. John Decker, who is Great Television Senior National Editor and White House Correspondent. I'm talking about the indictment. There there is no other. uh, In other words, where are the felonies? How do you defend yourself? I want to read this verbatim. I don't want to take any credit for this. This is Andy McCarthy, and I want to give him all the credit. McCarthy's been a guiding light um, through the process of trying to understand some of the legal matters with Trump. And the reason I go to McCarthy, Rev, he's not a Trumpster, and he's not a never-Trumpster. I mean, you can tell. You can really understand when McCarthy writes, it's about the law, the Constitution, the legalities, the politics. Somebody, you know, he accepts that Trump is a political figure, a political actor, so there's going to be some politics involved in in pursuing Trump in a criminal fashion. But Andy McCarthy um, has been, to me, the fairest arbiter, not, not of, of Trumpism, not of America first, but rather the legal situations that former President Trump finds himself is uh, in, what are valid, what what should be worrisome to the Trump universe, and, and what are just absolute political, you know, just political hackery is, is what this is. So I want to read McCarthy in a second, but if somebody's on the phone, let, let's give let's be respectful of our caller's times. Joe in Hartsville. Morning, Joe. Yeah, good morning, guys. You know, every country's got a constitution. You ought to read the Soviet Union, the Russian constitution. It's beautiful. But do they have the enforcement of it? Just like the United States, it's words on the paper. The problem we've got with this, and Trump better get it dismissed or moved or the judge replaced because he's got three problems. The problem 
number one is the judge. The judge is a Biden donator. His daughter worked for Harris. He's already adjudicated on several of Trump business, and every determination was against Trump. Second problem is this prosecutor. He ran on the fact that he was going to get Trump. And the people in Manhattan voted for him for that reason. Now, the voter pool is going to be of the people that voted for him to get Trump. So you're you're not going to get a, a, a fair trial whatsoever. They've already proved that in Washington when they've let all these people off that were you know, we said slam dunk, they're guilty. And, but so the, the, I keep hearing all these people talk about, you know, we need a, a convention of states. Yeah, we do, but they, they're not following the laws we have now. So why would, you know, you, you change the Constitution? Would they follow that? The people are going to have to change this, and we're the only ones. Because Reagan always said freedom and liberty is only one generation away from extinction. So that's something for people to think about. Y'all have a good one. Thank you, Joe. The jury pool will be selected by a universe of people who voted against Donald Trump 85 to 15%. So there's an 85% chance Sounds fair. you get a juror that would probably <laughs> rather Trump be you know, shipped off to Siberia or somewhere. I mean, there's, there's, you know, Andy McCarthy, are, there's a couple of, not McCarthy, but a couple of experts I've heard argue for a change of venue. McCarthy makes the most interesting argument I've heard yet. McCarthy believes that the, the charges must be dropped because, and he goes to the constitution and legalities. I want to read this real quick. I got about three minutes here before we take our next break. Um, I mean, there's a long story. Alvin Bragg's indictment fails as an indictment. I mean, that's the name of the story, national view, but, but I've got a few, Things here highlighted. The worst due process abuse of Bragg's indictment, however, is that it's not an indictment. The Constitution's Fifth Amendment guarantees that Americans may not be accused of a serious crime, essentially a felony, absent an indictment approved by a grand jury. We've got that. The indictment has two purposes. First, it must put the defendant on notice of exactly what crime has been charged so that he may prepare his defense. Second, the indictment sets the parameters for the defense closely related right to double jeopardy protection. Remember that double jeopardy protection also set forth in the Fifth Amendment. That is stating the crime charge. The indictment enables the defendant to claim a double jeopardy violation if the prosecutor attempts to try him a second time on the same offense. Here, the indictment fails to say what the crime is. Bragg said he is charging Trump with felony falsification of records under Section 175.10 of New York's Penal Code. To establish that offense, Bragg must must prove beyond a reasonable doubt that Trump caused a false entry to be made in his business record and did so with an intent to defraud that specifically included trying to, here are the words, commit another crime or did uh, or aid or conceal the commission of another, uh, of that other crime. Nowhere in this indictment, I mean, this is McCarthy's words, nowhere in this in, in the indictment does the grand jury specify what other crime Trump fraudulently endeavored to commit or concealed by falsifying the records. 
This is an excusable, excuse me, an inexcusable failure of notice. The indictment also fails to alert Trump of what laws he has violated, much less how he violated those laws. If any prosecutor were ever daft enough in the future to accuse Trump of falsifying records to conceal, say, a federal a campaign federal finance crime, Bragg's indictment would be useless for double jeopardy purposes because it doesn't specify what criminal jeopardy Trump is in. So, I mean, McCarthy's arguing in kind of a constitutional fashion that the law says this indictment is illegal. Now, it's not going to, I mean, none of this is going to work. It's not going to be uh, dropped. I mean, the charges aren't going to be dismissed. That The venue's not going to be changed. It's not about justice. It's not about, you know, law and order. It's not about getting to the bottom of holding people accountable. It's all about politics. And it's really, I've not heard anybody full-throttled support. I mean, even MSNBC is a little bit queasy about this. I saw uh, Rachel Maddow, not Rachel Maddow, um, the girl that used to work for Bush, Nicole Wallace. Nicole Wallace. That's hard to believe how many people used to work for Bush that ended up on MSNBC. But anyway, that's the story for another day. A lot of Bushies over at MSNBC. But um, but but she was trying to convince one of their legal experts to go along. You know, uh, it's Trump. Remember, forget law and order. It's Trump. Forget legalities. Forget due process. It's Trump. And this guy kept saying, uh, Nicole, I'm not saying that. I- I'm not going to say that. In other words, I, the little bit of reputation I have with a legal profession, I'm not throwing it in the toilet in the name of making sure we get Donald Trump. But McCarthy's making an interesting argument, the double jeopardy argument. Um. Trump doesn't know today what the crime is. I mean, imagine that. We've arrested a president of the United States, and the defendant, along with the uh, the country, are speculating, assuming, um, anticipating that the charge is campaign, viol- uh, campaign finance violations. I mean, we're, we're, we're thinking that's what it is. So for the first time in American history, a rogue and racist district attorney decides to go after a former president, never happened before in American history, and the president, the former president, and his legal team, and the supporters of the president have no idea. Well, I mean, that's unfair. They have some idea what the crime is, but it's not laid out in the document, in the indicting document, and Bragg, the DA, says he doesn't have to. Wow. And half of America okay with that. That's bizarre land to me. I mean, that, that is, if you want to know what the definition of Trump derangement syndrome, I mean, I get the, the, the attitude and the, the, the bombast and the, uh, the irreverence, but I get all that. Some people like that sort of behavior. Some don't. I mean, I understand that. That's human personality. That's humanism 101. But the law is the law. And for 200 and nearly 50 years, no American president had ever been charged with a crime. No former president had ever been charged with a crime until this DA decides to charge Donald Trump with a crime and in the indicting document doesn't say what the crime is. That, by definition, is a banana republic. Take a break. Back in a few. I got so much stuff here that I want to get to, and I don't think I'm going to get to the majority of it. We're doing a short show tomorrow. We'll only be on the air. We'll do a three-hour show Two hours will be live. The third hour will not. And we're going to hand off to Glenn Beck an hour earlier than we normally do so he can cry and 
offer up some conspiracy <laughs> theories that I don't offer up from six until um until ten. I have been um, fortunate enough to go to Augusta uh, on Fridays for the past. Uh, I got friends in low places. I got one or two friends in high places. Got a bunch of them in low places. <laughs> one or two in high places. One of those friends in high places has been kind enough to offer up a couple of tickets to Augusta on Friday. And um, he kind of owes nice. me, and he knows he owes me. Yeah. Um, so he I, I kind of rotate my kids and my my middle kid, my oldest, excuse me, my youngest son and middle kid, I refer to him as my hippie kid. Uh, Rev, Rev kind of laughs, and I struggle <laughs> with him. He's a romantic at heart. And I'll tell him the, the world chews romantics up and spits them out every single every single day. Um, when, when, my, when, my, when my oldest kid wanted for his birthday a bicycle, my youngest wanted – a book on bird watching or, you know, or, or whale sightings, or he's just one of these, um, not strange. I'm not saying that he's just different than, than his, um, than his father is. I'm not sure he's the capitalist. I am. He's a little more, um, romantic about things worldly and, uh, and economically, but anyway, we'll do, um, six until eight tomorrow live. We'll record from eight until nine, and then we'll hand it off to Glenn Beck and he can continue the conspiracy theory talk that we, um, kick off we every go. morning. At 6.05, Drew McKissick, state party chairman and, um, and national co-chair of the party, has agreed for whatever reason, I don't know why, but he's agreed to sit in with us on Thursday mornings, and we're and we're thankful he does. Um, Drew would be one of my friends in political high places. Good morning, sir. How are you? Good morning, and I just want to, you know, give you a little bit of comfort. You know, it was once said that a, li- a conservative is just a liberal who has been mugged by reality, so eventually... <laughs> You know, reality catches up with the romantics. I think is is the point you were trying to make a minute ago. But so but Drew, he but Drew, he's got a mama that allows him to be a romantic far longer than oh. I'm comfortable. Uh, it's called the cell phone scholarship. You know, I, I just wonder uh-huh. when the when the termination date on the cell phone scholarship. I, I want to make a deal with you, and I, I want to help fix something. I mean, Drew is a guy that has to keep a lot of things in play. I mean, he's got an official responsibility. I mean, I don't. I mean, I, I can say something today and move on and say something else tomorrow. And and at times, Rev, I get accused of being hurtful about the Republicans. I mean, I, I do. I'm divisive and I'm I'm too damn opinionated and I won't give in and I and I want things to be my way. But but I want to beat Democrats. I mean, I, I'm to the point now that I think there's such a difference in the way the two parties view the country and its future that we've got to win and and we've got to kind of coalesce around some things that we do have in common. Drew, Drew, here's what bothers me, and I want to get your – I mean, here's why I do get so aggressive, and, and probably people could perceive me as, 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 as more difficult than I should be. I watched a video uh, on Twitter yesterday, and it's a, it's a pretty prominent Republican, and he's speaking to a group of people in Washington, and he says, look, you may get your way in the primary, but you need us in the general. In other words, don't you dare vote for Donald Trump because if you do, we'll make you pay a price in November. That cuts both. Drew, how do we how do we collaborate? I mean, how do we solve some of those internal issues that we know, you know I know exist? Sure. We we've got to have these candid conversations. Your take on that? Well, I mean, it is first off, it is not a new problem. This is not something that's new that's just happened that we're just now dealing with. This is something that every political party since uh, or since their inceptions have had to deal with because you have people uh, with you know strong opinions. Obviously, we get involved in politics because we're opinionated. 
uh, and we care about things. Uh, and, uh, you know, some of you know, the different things that may be at issue for us, we might hold more deer than someone across the street from us, and then it promotes us to get in competition with one another and have different candidates who speak differently on those different views. But at the end of the day, we are in a political party. Political parties, basically by definition, are coalitions, coalitions of people who don't agree 100% of the time, but probably agree 90% of the time. And then, as you point out, you know, at the end of the day, we got to win. Losers don't make policy. That's an ironclad rule of politics. Losers do not make policy. You have to win. You win through addition and multiplication, not through subtraction and division. And alternatively, or alternately, you have had, you know, people, whether it's in however you want to define them today, let's say the far right element of the party or the far moderate, you know, end of the party or whatever, at different times in different campaigns say, you know, well, if you nominate this kind of person, we're not going to be with you in the fall, you know, in November. Uh, and usually what happens is elections tend to focus the mind. The stark choices tend to focus the mind. And I think, as you were about to point out a minute ago, the choices we are facing today are radically more, you know, different than they were 10, 20, 30, 40 years ago. You know, we're not arguing over marginal tax rates now. You know, we're arguing over whether the Constitution is a good thing. You know, stuff that's more fundamental to our society and to politics, to civics, uh, to our liberties. That kind of thing tends to focus the mind and I would say makes a lot of that stupid talk, you know, kind of just evaporate when you get toward Election Day. Now, not all the time. I'd agree with you on that. And our job as a party is to point those things out to people. And, you know, look, at the end of the day, we have to work together. We have to win. Everybody doesn't always get all of what they want. And by definition, you can't in politics. we got a country with, you know, how many hundred million people in it with different opinions. You know, by definition, nobody's going to get everything that they want. Politics is a process of trying to get as much of what you want as possible and move the ball forward, and then you can come back and argue about the rest later. Uh, and if people aren't on the same page come Election Day and working together, then you don't win and everybody's disappointed. But, but Drew, if you're a populist America firster, and that would be me, I mean, my, my, my natural sure. inclinations are to be more populist than conservative. I mean, I'm small uh-huh. government, therefore I'm conservative, but populism is what helped shape my emotional belief about politics. Right. And when I hear somebody in Washington say, basically, I feel like I'm being held hostage. In other uh-huh. words, okay, Trump wins the primary, you get your way, but we're not going along and getting along. Mm-hmm. That, that, that's a hard, I mean, that, that's a complex well, argument on both sides to come to some resolution and agreement with. Is that, is, is that, I mean, I know you sense exactly what I'm talking about, but how yeah. do we get there? I mean, there is winning elections. I mean, if the Trumpsters yeah. stay home, if they don't get their way in a general, yeah. but, but, but some of the establishment Republicans stay home, if they don't get their way uh, in, in November or excuse me, in the, in the prime, how do we, how do we find some common ground? You talked very eloquently and articulately about common ground, but, but it seems to me we know that about one another, mm-hmm. but we can't quite yeah. get there. Well, first off, I would say that we have to be mindful of, uh, you know, who's doing the talking whenever, you know, you hear things like that. I mean, we, you know, when, when people think the Republican Party, sometimes the first thing that comes to their mind is, you know, Mitch McConnell or, you know, Kevin McCarthy or some elected official somewhere, some couple of elected officials. You know, they are not the party. You know, the party is a much bigger organism, if you will, than any couple of elected officials. So when you hear certain elected officials mouth off, quite frankly, with, with uh, you know, some uh, uh, less than intelligent talk like you just relayed a minute ago, uh, then, you know, that's one thing. Stick that over on the side. You know, but 
at the end of the day, if if uh, if they are not on board and we're not on board together, actually, and and focused on focused on the opposition and what the opposition wants to do, what they have done, what they have told us they want to do. Uh, you know, we have to agree if we can't come to election day and see whoever we have nominated isn't better than what the Democrats are putting up, then we're not looking close enough at the problem. And that's something that we have to continually relay to one another, relay to elected officials. And when you hear that type of talk, you have to just smack them back down and say, look, that's stupid. Uh, that's not how we win. Uh, we don't always get what we want. You're not always going to get what you want. And that's, that's an argument. That's a conversation we constantly have to have. And that's never going to change and go away because, because of human nature, quite frankly. Drew, who's in the room when the party adopts an agenda? Mm-hmm. Well, first off, there's obviously our platform. You know, So we, the Republican Party, have a platform. We've got, I would argue, the most conservative platform we've ever had. Uh, and you know, certainly since I got involved in the late 80s, uh, and we also have a platform here on the state level, which I believe is the most conservative platform we've had. And I would say here in South Carolina, that platform and, and the way we have moved to the right uh, and spoken the issues that people in South Carolina cared about, or care about, uh, has uh, you know essentially tracked with our electoral success here in South Carolina. You know, we're the most successful we've been as a party here now in South Carolina in 150 years. Uh, so obviously, you know, those issues are resonating. Uh, we have a national platform that will get adopted next summer when we have our national convention. Uh, you know, but then when you start talking about legislative agendas and things like that, as you know, you've got the House, you've got the Senate, you've got the State House, you've got the State Senate, you've got the governors, you've got you know, a multitude of different, quote, Republican groups that may be made up of different combinations of Republican elected officials that sometimes might have their own legislative agenda or their own particular bills that they're pushing to do certain things that are in larger concept in our platform. Uh, you know, the one thing I don't like to do is begin to trash people based on how they want to do what we say we want to do. It's one thing to say what our principles are, but different people, even within our party, can disagree over how to get there. You know, we can both agree we want to go to Charleston, but we both have a different idea about, you know, which route to take. Uh, you know, that's the kind of thing where we don't need to start, you know, shooting our own people, if you will, based on how they want to get to where we say we want to go with our principles. Can we have too much success? Can we get in our own way? Is it, I mean, the Republicans are as, I mean, we're as well positioned as we've ever been in South Carolina. Mm -hmm. That's a good thing. Yep. But but we're also, I mean, it can be a bad thing to be as well positioned as you've ever been <laughs> because you can become your own worst enemy. Is that is that fair? Well, yeah, it, that's always fair. Uh, you know, it's because, you know, it, it's possible when things go real well for you that you lose sight of why you're doing what you're doing and what has made you successful. And this is something I talk about in Republican meetings all the time. You know, we can't get comfortable with success because when you get too comfortable with it, you forget how you got it. And you forget how you got there and, and the fundamentals that help make it happen. And, you know, sometimes you can have Republicans who can look around and say, you know, well, we beat all the Democrats. We got nobody else to fight with unless you and me fight. You know, well, that's not a productive way to, to, to advance our agenda and our conversation. Uh, that's always a challenge. And, you know, a lot of politics, as you know, you will know, uh, boils down to personalities and relationships. Uh, you know, that's that's the, the grease, if you will, that, that makes you know, things move, not just in politics, but in business and everything else. People have relationships and work together around the things that they agree on. Uh, but the minute that, you know, we forget how we got here, we can begin to have problems. 
disunity comes in and disunity is subtraction and division and that leads to defeat and like i said losers do not make policy one of the concerns i have at the national level and i want you to put your co-chair at the national level hat on for a second i believe that our party's virtues or morality and ethics. I mean, I really, I think that our, our uh-huh. stance on abortion, our stance on taxation, our stance on on human dignity, on on marriage. I think a lot of those are, are basically anchored in morality, human ethic. Mm-hmm. When, when right. we look at what happened in Pennsylvania, what happened in Nevada, what we think happened in Wisconsin, and I'm talking about private financing of campaigns. I'm talking about harvesting and, and unsolicited mail-in ballots. But we've got to be competitive. How, how do we maintain? That, that decency and morality and ethic when we're in yeah. the, I call the, I guess the gutter of winning elections. The cutthroat game of politics. Yeah. I mean, well, and you know, part of what we have to do, and this is a conversation we're having at all levels uh, and, and in particular states that have some of the problems more dramatically that you just pointed out uh, with election law or new election procedures that have basically been introduced or adopted, you know, or pushed, uh, since COVID, whether legislatively in certain states controlled by Democrats or by judges, by judicial fiat or regulatory changes, whatever it may be, you know, to introduce things like ballot harvesting, like all mail-in voting or, you know, and universal mail-in or absentees, uh, you know, right to cure ballots, a bunch of different new processes that are basically, you know, uh, beyond what we normally understand is you go to the polls, show your ID, and you cast a ballot. You know, the, the normal thing that we think of when it comes to going to vote. Those are, you know, it is, in many cases, it has made fraud easier, which I would argue is the whole point of why they've done it. Uh, now, that being the case, how do we deal with that? Uh, you know, it's one thing to point out that it's wrong, and it ought to be changed. Yes. Uh, but if you don't have the power to change it in those particular states, let's say that may be controlled legislatively by Democrats and they're not going to change the law and you can't successfully sue to change the law, potentially, then what do you do? Like I said, losers don't make policy. If that means we need to get good at ballot harvesting in particular states like that or even better than the Democrats are at it in those states, that's what we're going to have to do because we have to win. If we don't win, we can't change the policy. So the answer to that really depends on what state you're standing in. Uh, there are, I'd say, about a dozen around the country where there are serious issues like that, and our guys are going to have to get good, and that's what we're looking at now in terms of training and more resources on the ground and to how to make our guys good or better than Democrats at using the existing rules of the game, whatever they may be. If it's the rules, then you know, we're going to play according to the rules, and we got to win. Last question. Appreciate your time. Drew McKissick, SCGOP chairman, co-chair of the National Republican Party. Uh, obviously, a lot of the indictment and arrest of Donald Trump has dominated the news. Yep. I've got a very strong opinion about what I think. Um, yep. But yep. but but a lot of our callers, a lot of the feedback I hear at the gym, at the restaurant, um, amongst friends who, by and large, vote Republican, don't believe we do as good enough job of fighting fire with fire. That's painted mm-hmm. with a very broad brush. I mean, that's a very, very general statement sure. but as someone sure. who ultimately has an official responsibility mm-hmm. what what is your interpretation when republican yeah. voters say damn it it's time to fight fire with fire yeah. what, what do you hear drew well, <laughs> well i mean it, it, i hear and hear people who i think want to hear their opinion or not their opinion they, they want to hear their opinion be validated uh, more broadly and more loudly in all the different media sources that we all swim in all day long. 
Um, and and a lot, some of that's possible. Some of that's not possible because you got, you know, the liberal media is what the liberal media is. They're not going to give us a fair shake. Uh, you know, but, uh, when it comes to the Trump indictment, what we've seen, I think it's fair to say we've seen the worst politicization and weaponization of the legal system. I think in our time, maybe in American history, you know, when you're going after a former president of the United States, someone who is running for president with what is at best, potentially allegedly a misdemeanor not a felony, uh, by a DA funded by George Soros in a city with crime rates that are going sky high. Uh, you know, it makes Americans take a look at that and think, well, if they can do that to him, what can they do to me? And it's a very good point. It's a very good takeaway. And they got a right to be upset and mad about it. Whatever your political opinion may be about Donald Trump, whatever your ideology might be, I think that's what a lot of people are seeing now. And I think there was a poll two days ago, 75% of Americans think that this is, you know, politically motivated and doesn't have credibility. Uh, you know, as divided as our country is, if you can get 75% of people on the same side, any question, uh, I think uh, you're doing pretty good. Very well explained. Drew, thank you for your time, my man. Appreciate you joining us, and um, I hope to speak yes, again sir. next Thursday. Have a great one. Thank you. You do the same. Bye. Drew McKissick, excuse me, South Carolina uh, Republican Party chairman as well as co-chair at the National Party, Drew will probably, in all likelihood, I don't want me to say this, Drew will probably, in all likelihood, be um, national chairman of the Republican Party next year. Really? I mean, I think they're, yeah, but he's kind of an aggressive um, guy, the track record in South Carolina. I just hear that a lot. I mean, I hear from from people in at the gym and the restaurants, you know, bumping into me, and they know we do this for a living, and they're like, man, I'm just tired of getting pushed around. I mean, I'm tired of um, the Democrats winning with no holes barred, and we allow this morality and ethic to continue to drive us not being willing to go as far as needed to win in certain places. Kind of interesting that Drew said, yeah, I mean, we've got to revisit the way we do things in some of these states that are not going to address legislatively some of the um, some of the encouraging of fraud in our um, election process. 843-661-0937. We'll take a break, be back, try to get a hold of Robert Cahaley, off Trafalgar in just a moment. See, this is something that irks me, and I can't push but so hard. I mean, I can push as hard as I'd like because I don't have any official responsibility to the Republican Party. But I was watching a video yesterday of a of a very prominent Republican uh, fundraising entity in our nation's capital, and the guy was addressing a bunch of I'd call establishment Republicans by and large, and he would and he was arguing ref. He said basically, look. They may have us outnumbered in the, in the primary, but they need us in the general. And in other words, they better nominate the candidate that we want, or we won't show up in the general and vote for the Republican. And I felt like saying, so you're an independent. I mean, there's no shame in that. Just say, what, stop calling yourself a Republican and admit that you're an independent. And if you don't get, you know, the, um, the mainstream Republican candidate, then you're going to sit it out. I mean, that, that bothers me a lot. Because they're asking the Trump voter to, to basically look at the big picture and not vote for Trump, but rather, you know, a DeSantis or someone like that because they're more appealing in the primary. Um, and if you don't get your way, then we need you to come back out in the in the general. I mean, it, it's, 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 a, it's a double standard within within the party itself. Robert Cahaley of Trafalgar, senior strategist at Trafalgar is with us. Robert, good morning. How are you, sir? I'm doing great. So is do I have fair criticism there? I mean, is there a movement in Washington to make sure that it happens the way they want it to happen. Yeah, I think these are this is a whole generation of people whose parents didn't make them eat their vegetables and they got to have ice cream for dinner and they're spoiled. <laughs> and this is ridiculous. 
I mean, this, and, and this is to be expected, though, because this is exactly the same behavior that they always associate to Trump voters. Is that Trump voters won't come out? Trump, you know, we don't want to alienate them. Which, when that's never actually been the case. So, yeah, yeah, I, I heard some of the, you know, some of the. I, I was hoping some of these guys weren't taking debate. You know, you hear your Romneys and Jeb Bushes and all say, "Oh, we think this is wrong what they're doing to Trump." And I'm like, guys, be careful touting that. They're setting you up. So when there is something. Uh, the next thing comes down that they do think is legitimate. They can say, look, now, before I said it wasn't, now it is. So, you know, don't be putting them on the front page. So, Robert, none of the establishment Republicans have warmed up to Trumpism? No, because they hate populism. They really don't want average people to have a say-so. This is their little uniparty club, and, they don't, and, you know, he's Rodney Dangerfield, and he's here with his big boat to mess it all up. So how does what happened this week reshape or help shape the Republican primary? And by that, I mean the indictment and the eventual arrest. How, what's different today than last week when you and I spoke? That the numbers Trump has now put him with enough delegate. If these numbers hold, and I'm not saying they will, but if they did, uh, Trump wouldn't have to make any deals. He'd have a majority of delegates going into the convention, and there'd be no stopping him winning the nomination. Now, how long this lasts, I don't know. I mean, this this momentum. I mean, you know, Trump Trump lives in a world where, when he's kind of off the TV and out of mind, is when he fades. And when he's a center of controversy, it's when, you know, to Trump, publicity is like oxygen to a fire. And as long as he's on the front page, he is going to dominate. And then you're going to have a DeSantis sit back and have to make an intelligent decision. He's going to go, is this really what I want to do? Because DeSantis is too smart a card player to run and lose. And I don't think he has any interest in running and losing. And so at this point, uh, everybody's just watching to see if, if these numbers for Trump fade or, or if they're going to hang on. And frankly, none of us really know. I mean, the, the, you know, the public gets busy. The public is fickle. They, you know, things happen and take their attention off it, uh, go, going a different way. But the one thing that I think Trump has going for him, and, and I, you know, if, this, if they would use this more, is this idea of the, all of our life we've had one person run for president and say, here's what I'm going to do, and the other person says, well, here's my record. Or both of them say what I'm going to do because nobody's in office. We've never had two people who both had the job to do a true apples-to-apples comparison. And that is, that is a race that I think the Republican Party does well in. When people can say, yeah, A or B, we know what it's like when either one of these guys runs the country. I don't, I don't see Biden winning that test. Robert, what sort of advice would you give Trump? I mean, he's got a legal team that's handling the legal matter. I mean, uh, Andy McCarthy had an article in Nash Review and said it's an indictment that's not an indictment. So there, there's, a, there's a legal story here that will play itself out. But if you were giving Trump political advice, how would you play that hand of cards? 
having been there, I would tell him, don't let those lawyers tell you not to talk about this. The biggest mistake you can make is not talking about it. The, the, the more you can use it to stay in the headlines, the better, because when you're off TV, you're out of mind and people forget. People get nostalgic when they start and re- remembering what things were like. And just, you know, don't, don't take that, don't take that bait. And when you have, the other thing is when you have a national audience, like he did, I mean, he was on CNN for a solid 45 minutes before they cut him off the other night, at least. When you have that kind of an audience, you know, give him your best stuff. That's when, that's when he should have been talking about this contrast with the economy, uh, less about grievances, more about contrast with the economy, more about his plans to build these cities and baby booms and change things around. Like, that, that, that is not going to be – you don't get that audience every day. So much of what he says is heard in the echo chamber. It doesn't get beyond that. When, when you have a chance to talk to new voters that never hear from you, give them something – that's different than what they've always heard from you. Robert, is he getting different advice today than he did in 2020? In other words, the people around him that, that are, that are giving him political advice, are they giving different advice? Do you support the, 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 the advisory team that he's put together now more than you did in 2020? I would love to say it's hugely different, but it's not. But you've always uh, led me to believe, I mean, I'll, I'll let our listeners in on a private conversation. You've always been concerned about those giving him political advice. Is that fair? Is that a fair characterization? Yes, because I think the thing, some of these people are have always been afraid to tell him the way it was. I mean, somebody needed to tell him after that election, and people out there might not like what I'm about to say. We live in an electoral college system, and when the electoral college had voted, and none of those states had any contested electors, and none of them did. Somebody should have said, "Mr. President, this is this is the end. Uh, you need to go out there. You need to say I lost. You need to say I cheated. I mean, people cheated me in certain states, but in the end, the states get to make that decision, and they've made it. And I'm going to run again. And then, and then we avoid all the January 6th and all that stuff. If he just basically conceded after the Electoral College met. He could have acknowledged that he believed it was stolen, but that's that. Once the Electoral College meets, it doesn't matter if it's stolen, it's over. Is the biggest problem Trump has in a general with the independents who won't forgive him and blame him to some degree for January 6th? Absolutely. And not just 6th, it's everything that goes between then and right at that time, at, you know, after the electoral college met, and even leading up to that. I mean, part of the problem is he was listening. I mean, to be honest, he was listening to some crazy people. Some people who literally are not good lawyers, who are not basing their decisions based on good law, and were telling him all kind of crazy stuff about machines and stuff like that that I've never believed. And they got him off in the wrong direction. And if they'd have been talking about absentee ballots and change rules and things like that, and how that system was gained and stuff like that, they'd have been a lot better off. 
but he just, you know, the problem is a lot of people tend to tell him what he wants to hear. And, you know, that's the problem with any strong leader is you're surrounded by, you know, what we used to call yes men. And it's, it, it's tough to look at that person and say, hey, I don't care if you end up firing me today, but what you're never going to do, you're never going to wonder whether I told you the truth. So if that's the problem, and here, here's, here's the conundrum, how does he reestablish some degree of faith or trust with two, three, four percent of the independents that, that he has to have back on board if he wins? And what is the game plan? You're not going to get all the independents. We know that. You know that. Everybody. But but you got to get another two or three percent of the independents to win a general election. What would Kahaley's game plan be like to 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 gain back the trust and faith? of the 3% of independence it takes to win in November. I have to disagree. Anyone who says, I won't vote from every January 6th, you aren't going to change their mind. However, there are a lot of Democrats, people who grew up as Democrats, uh, that are also people of faith who are finding themselves strangers in their own party, he always won more Democrats than people ever knew, and he won less Republicans than people ever knew. I've said that since we got elected. People, you know, they're, they're just Republicans who don't like him because he upset the establishment. Um, so what I would tell him is to focus on what he did with the economy, uh, talk, talk about the kind of crazy culture war these people are in and how they're trying to change things and unite those people who are going to vote because they want a better economy and those people who have found their Democratic Party is so out of line with their faith that they can no longer justify voting uh, with it. So you're saying make no attempt at those who blame you for January. You think those are just, I mean, those are lost causes. I think that everybody who blames him for January 6th, who is unwilling to look at the new revelations and the new tapes and reassess their thought is not winnable. But there are a lot of people, actually the vast majority of Americans, who don't rank that in the top five issues. And I think that he needs to focus on those people. Um, again, the tapes have come out, everything else we've seen, it's not quite what we were told it was. And that's very helpful to him. And some of those people peel off automatically. But if they don't have the, nat- the, the natural or the intellectual curiosity to do their own research, to look back and to, to look at some of that video and say, maybe what I thought wasn't accurate. If they don't have that, or if they do, and they're still unwilling to see it, Donald Trump ain't going to change their minds. But the good news is there are very few people who make their voting decisions based on that. Very few. Uh, last question. Can anybody not named Ron DeSantis beat Donald Trump in a Republican primary? Well, you know, I, would, I wouldn't go with the, the, the NFL any given Sunday. But what I would say is, let's say a Ron DeSantis does not choose to get in and Trump gets battered pretty hard, then maybe one of the others could move up. Yeah, I think it's possible, but I think, but I think 
anyone who does their homework should also understand if you beat Donald Trump to win the Republican nomination, the odds that you were going to go to be president are not very good. I mean, Donald Trump who loses the Republican nomination has a whole crowd of people who wants to either not vote at all, um, they're just angry, or, or they want to vote third, some kind of third party and encourage them to do that. So, yeah, I mean, it's like beating him, but to what end? So you, know, you think that, but, 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 but so, so, you, so you're putting on the table, I mean, if he doesn't win the nomination, you think he could blow the thing up going out the door? I think if he doesn't win the nomination, it doesn't even matter what he does. There are enough of his people who would write his name in in the fall or, or you know, a campaign for him all the way up there. Or, or, or I think that the crowd that would that Trump has brought to the Republican Party would leave and they wouldn't get him back anytime soon. That's interesting. Thank you, Robert. Appreciate your time this morning, my man. Absolutely. Y'all have a good morning. Do the same. Robert Cahaley, senior strategist for Trafalgar. Not talking about polling and data, but but more I asked Robert yesterday, I said, I want you to put your consultant hat on for just a second. Strategy. Your former consultant hat and talk about strategy and less about, about nuanced data. Take a break. Back in just a few moments. 843-661-0937. Last hour of the week. Real quick programming note. Live and in living color tomorrow from 6 until 8. We'll have a recorded hour from 8 until 9, and then 9 to 10, we'll hand it off to the um, the next conspiracy theorist in line on conservative talk radio, Glenn Beck. Uh, <laughs> I'm going to Augusta with my middle kid to watch a round of golf. I mean, I don't know much about the golf, but Augusta National is quite the spectacular place to go and enjoy yourself. So um, got a lot of friends in low places, got a couple of friends in high places, and one has allowed me. Uh, to to um to go where the uh the well to do and well healed go. Cool. Uh, Fox News Radio's Tanya J. Powers is in our um is in it ain't the nation's capital but it kind of is. New York City is the um the melting pot of America. Tanya, good morning. How are you? Well, it was the nation's capital for uh, a while at one point. Uh, it is just not the nation's capital now. Yeah, you're right. It was at one point in time. I've seen the statues that commemorate it being our nation's. Yeah. Our nation's capital, and um, and it was kind of the nation's capital a couple of days ago when Donald Trump was arrested. Um, you know, imagine Trump making a media circus out of anything. Uh, hardly, hardly unbelievable. But, but what is the latest as it relates to the reaction of Trump's legal issues, Tanya? Uh, and by the way, don't tell anybody in New York who is from here that this is not the center of the universe. It will not end well. <laughs> well, um, I'll, I'll tell you this as a South Carolinian, and I mean this sincerely. <laughs> I feel different when I'm in New York. I mean, it is. I mean, there's a vibe yeah. there that, that that is kind yeah. of the embodiment of the American spirit. There is. I mean, I also get that feeling when I'm in Charleston too. So there's, you know, but it's a different vibe. It's a, a totally yeah. different vibe. You're exactly right. Um, but I will say that. One of the interesting things that I've been noticing after the indictment uh, and everything that's followed that and all the like the legal parsing and all of that that's still going on is the fundraising, like how this has helped the bottom line for uh, the Trump campaign for 2024. I think that's interesting. I've been kind of keeping an eye on this. Yesterday, he posted on Truth Social that his campaign had raised, I think, 
10 to 12 million dollars. It's a lot. Uh, since the indictment was announced, that is what the campaign says that, you know, that they have raised since then. So it's clearly been, um, you know, a windfall for, for the campaign uh, in terms of fundraising. This is obviously not the only fundraising going on. I think the Democrats have probably done their own share of fundraising in kind of the opposite direction. But uh, he's, you know, continuing to make you know campaign moves in, in all of this. Um, he is supposed to call into some town hall meetings today to rally supporters. Uh, he is going to travel to Nashville next week, according to reporting from the Washington Post. He's going to be talking to top GOP donors there. Uh, Indianapolis is also next week for the NRA's convention, uh, annual convention. He says he will be there as well. Uh, obviously, some fundraising will probably happen at that point. Um, so I think I think it's kind of interesting to see because if, think about this, you know, and you know as well. If if an elected official, a former polit- a politician, former elected official, presidential candidate, anybody of of note like that, that would that in in times past that was indicted, it would be more like okay, I'm just going to slink off into the corner over here and not make a, a big fuss because that would have been, you know, shameful and embarrassing and something that would have harmed your political aspirations. I think it's interesting that the opposite has happened now. This is something that he has managed to capitalize on as far as fundraising goes. Tanya, the one thing that I think we underestimate, I don't think I do because I'm out here, but but I do believe that the Mm -hmm. people in New York, I mean, one of the power centers of the world, the people of Washington, one of the political powerhouses of of, in the history of mankind, they, they for whatever reason, and, I, and I'm, I'm giving an opinion here, for whatever reason, they refuse to accept how disenfranchised and disillusioned the American public are with those power centers. And, and, I, and I've used this analogy before. The only thing to do the day after the 2016 presidential election, if you are one of these power brokers, is to look in the mirror and have a moment of introspection and say, how in God's name did we get here? I mean, how do they have so little confidence in our ability to run the country that they're giving this crazy guy a chance at authority? And I just don't think the people, uh, and I'm talking about you personally, but I'm talking about the people that make big decisions on America's behalf in New York and, and in Washington and in some of the other economic hubs of our, they've just refused over and over and over again to accept that this person that they don't like, and I get it. A lot of us don't like him much. But but he's touched a nerve and connected with a universe of people who are totally disenchanted with, with the way our country's being run. Uh, a couple of things. I think, I mean, and I say this as somebody who has covered him since he announced, um, you know, I was at Trump Tower the day he came down the escalator in 2015. So I've, I've got a, a few years of, of, of kind of watching this from an interesting vantage point. A couple of things. I think that people in New York, especially, I can't really speak for Washington. I think people in New York have such a completely different view and relationship with Donald Trump because of all of the things that have gone on here with him during, you know, for since the eighties. I think that is one of the reasons that people here just sort of like went, yeah, that's not going to happen. And, and just sort of went about their, <laughs> their day um, until it did. I think the the other part of that is that, you know, in the other thing that and you know this as, you know, as someone who is very, in, very ingrained in politics, knows exactly what it takes. I think the, the other thing that nobody saw coming was that the 
the framework of how we have our, our government and how things are done is largely based on norms, not on these are ironclad things that you can't cross. These are lines you cannot cross. These are things you cannot do, or there will be, you know, legal repercussions. Where most of this was just basically norms, and we saw, you know, how those sort of went by the wayside in a lot of ways. It's it's, and that was what it was. It was it was just a well. This is how things are done. This is how things are traditionally handled. They don't have to be, but nobody ever really gave that a lot of thought until somebody didn't. And I think that's that's another thing that that Washington, you know, obviously did not see coming. Uh, I think a lot of people didn't see that coming. Um, So I think that those are two of the things to also keep in mind when you're talking about. I don't know that the rest of America just wasn't listened to. I think those two things just were sort of in the back of people's minds of, well, I mean, if you'll recall at the beginning of the 2016, you know, well, back in 2015, after he announced he was going to run, he was covered by the entertainment pages. Of, of major news outlets. That's where they put the coverage of him, you know, announcing that he was going to, if you look back, that's, those are the first pages. It wasn't on the front page of, of, you know, major news outlets being, you know, taken, okay, this is a serious candidate. This was covered in the entertainment pages, which I think also speaks to a lot of the relationship that most people had with him because he'd been on TV and been in, in movies and, and you know, on the tabloid pages and stuff like that. That's basically where a lot of people thought, okay, well, this is where this belongs because he's a celebrity. Um, like you said, not, none of this is, is – <laughs> I think if anybody had predicted this you know, six or seven years ago that we would, we would be here now and everything that's happened between then and now, it, we, we would have gone, okay – you need to settle down, take some deep breaths. We'll, you know, <laughs> we'll come back to this. But, but Tanya, you know, but, but to so my point, but you and I had, you and I in the last three minutes or four minutes have had mm-hmm. an, as an extensive a conversation about the fundamental issue we're talking about as anybody I've ever heard. I mean, in, in other words, the, the, the people that are in control of debate and dialogue, and, and I'll accept that. I mean, at some point in time, I was kind of in that room when, when these decisions were made. I mean, I was somewhat of an insider and um and i saw trump coming a mile a million miles away i mean there was no question in my mind that somebody someday was going to resonate with the disenfranchised the disillusioned the people that didn't believe their government was operating on behalf of their interests but rather interventionism or globalism i mean pick your pick your category there but for whatever reason tanya they've refused to have the conversation or debate that you and I just had. And until we have that debate, it's not going to be a brush fire. It's not going to be a, a fit and rage. It's going to be a, a political phenomenon that is going to totally integrate itself mm-hmm. in our process and redefine to your word what normal is. I, I hope I hope at some point we can figure out, you know, how to have any kind of dialogue anymore because everybody is so completely polarized at this point it's it's seen as a as a failing if you're a politician and you give room for okay maybe we should entertain a notion that's put forth by somebody else simply because it might be a good idea not because this person's in another party kill it immediately we don't like it and we i don't know how you i don't know how you fix any of that until you get to the point where you can at least tolerate someone else's point of view about an idea not what they stand for not what they're aspirations are their party affiliation or you know whatever color their tie is but how 
what what is the merit of this idea? And I think that has completely gone by the wayside. And I think you've done a phenomenal job, and I mean that sincerely of explaining that. And if you ever get tired of that very serious job you've got with Fox News, we've got a very unserious job offering as a co-host on a <laughs> early morning. Here you go. All right. We can't pay in money, but we get a lot of Pepsi product. And we got a liquor store, a big, big, big liquor superstore. <laughs> so we get Jefferson's Ocean and Jefferson Reserve. So we can pay you in Pepsi and bourbon, uh, but but not 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 rubles, wands, or dollars. But I mean that sincerely, Tom. Thank you for wandering off and and uh, and and let, letting us hear from a reporter who has a lot of opinions, and I think they're very, very informative and accurate. Thank you a lot. Sure, thanks. That's kind of an interesting take. Rev was a little bit fascinated by, oh, yeah. you know, her going down that road. And um, I've always felt that we, I mean, I think we've done this, Rev. I think we've created uh, some comfort level with the um, with the people that are provided by Fox to appear on our show. Um, I think diversity is good. Um, Tanya, I have no idea what her political biases are. I don't have any idea. I've never asked. Um, she never, I mean, she knows mine. I mean, I'm doing this four, day, four hours a day, five days a week. I'm, I'm ranting on behalf of conservatism for 20 hours a week. Wonder where I stand on the political issues of our time. Wonder, yeah, wonder if no I think this is a BS indictment or not. Uh, you, you would expect me to believe exactly that. But but I want to go back to something that I, and I think I can articulate this fairly well. And it, and it really goes back to the day after the election of 2016. I mean, it, it's, it's, it's just so entrenched in my, or ingrained in, in my mind. How did... The, the, the three or 4,000 people that we believe kind of make the rules of which we all else, and I'm talking about Senate Majority Leader, uh, Speaker of the House, I'm talking about the CEO of Exxon, CEO of Goldman Sachs, I'm talking about, I mean, you know, so some of the highfalutin corporate lawyers and, and lobbyists. I mean, there's a room somewhere. I mean, it's a pretty big room, but it's not 330 million people. I mean, there, there's a gaggle of people somewhere that have a lot more to say about where the country goes, sway and influence. Um, some of it's policy making. Some of it is um, is economic. Are uh, you speaking of the Davos crowd? Well, pretty sure. Much? I mean, that's exactly who I'm talking about. The Davos man and woman. Um, but but the Davos is kind of a global organization. Yep. I mean, when when we send people from America to 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 represent our interests in Davos, I mean, it is on behalf of globalism. And, and I'll get to Finland and NATO here sooner than later. Maybe next week because of tomorrow's abbreviated show. But but the point I want to make is 330 million people. You, you got, let's say, 5,000 people that are making 80% of the laws and rules of which everybody else. I mean, our economy operates this way. Why? Because they say it does. Our political world operates this way. Why? Because they say it does. And, and those people, I mean, we elected Donald Trump. I mean, not because we thought he was best qualified. Not because we thought he was best suited, had the right temperament, demeanor. You know why we voted for him subconsciously? Some did. Consciously, a lot of did. Because he wasn't like the rest of them. I mean, he said what he said. He meant what he said. Or we believed he did. Now, I don't know if he did or not. I think Trump made a lot of mistakes as a president. You would expect a political novice to make a lot of mistakes as an American president. I don't think. I mean, there's some out there that say he's the greatest president ever. I mean, I think he was a good president. I think, you know, that, that there, there's some uh, blind loyalty there that I don't think he deserves. But I want to go back to the other side because there is another side to this. I mean, there's a resistance to Donald Trump unlike any I've ever seen in American history. I resisted Obama because I didn't like his policies. I didn't like the fact that he was leading 
the country into a very leftist direction. I think Obama was a an unbelievably consequential president. Uh, at, at one time in my life, I thought he was a little bit harmless. Oh, no, no, not, not by any stretch of the imagination. He was a radical, and he radicalized a lot of things in American life. Um, but, but, but when Trump gets elected and you wake up that morning in your 5,000-square-foot beach home in the Hamptons, or you fly on your helicopter and land on top of the building at Goldman Sachs, you got to have one moment of introspection. And you got to say, wow, really? That guy? I'm the most bombastic, narcissistic, egotistical New Yorker in the history of mankind? They thought, I mean, the people in flower country, the construction worker, the farmer, the waitress, the school teacher, they thought he was better than all of us. But Rev, instead of that moment of introspection, self-evaluation, what did they do? Russia collusion. Ukrainian government, underhanded dealings, um, investigation after investigation after investigation. They double, they triple, they quadruple down, and they tried to destroy him and, in essence, the movement itself. And a lot of people got deeply offended by that. And that's where we are. It's not my fault. It's not Tanya's fault. It's not Jeff's fault. It's not Charles's fault. But that's where we are today. We are not unbelievably divided in polarized nation. And and how do we get better? I, I don't know. I mean, I don't have any idea. People ask me all the time, so what are we to do now? I, I don't have any idea. I mean, you know, I ascribe to the notion fight fire with fire. I mean, if they're going to bring a flimsy indictment that is really not an indictment because they don't list the subsequent crime, then then what do you do? I mean, you, you, you know, I had a guy in the gym yesterday tell me, well, it's just time we all sit down and, and try to come to some sort of agreement on where the country needs to go. And I said, okay, um, they just indicted a former president for the first time in American history. So now probably not the best time <laughs> to say, let's sit down, um, you know, smoke a joint and sing Kumbaya. I mean, that's just, I mean, I doubt very seriously that many people on the right have an interest right now in sitting down. You know what they should want? Retribution. I mean, they should want some revenge. They should find a DA or an AG to go after, you know, the uh, DA Bragg or Clintons or, or Obama. I mean, so, you know, Biden, Hunter Biden. I mean, I said it yesterday and I'll say it today. The only thing conservative America should do today is indict Hunter Biden for a crime or Jim Biden for a crime and eventually Joe Biden. That That's where we are. I don't like it. I wish it weren't the case. But, but once again, I don't get to meet the world where I want to meet the world. I got to meet the world where it is. And and one side, I think, has declared war on a political movement, and the political movement must respond accordingly. Let's go to the phone. David well, I, are you on the a, Let's go to the phone, then we'll take a call. Yeah, I mean, we, we then David we'll take here. a break. Okay. Yeah. Hey, David, you there? Yeah, I'm here, man. Uh, hey, that was good. Uh, Kahaley, Kahaley's talking about Caddyshack, man. He said... Uh, Trump is Rodney Dangerfield. Uh, I guess the established Republican would have been uh, Ted Knight in that movie. But I think about the Cinderella story. Uh, I want to talk about the Masters right quick, Ken. Uh, I guess Florence is the easternmost uh, exit on I-20. I'm thinking about Washington Road. Uh, you're going to be headed there, what, tomorrow? Tomorrow morning, yes, sir. Okay. I want you to do me a favor. I want you to make a mental inventory of how many motels, hotels there are on Washington Road. Because I have a bet. I think we've got an exit here that's got 20. So I don't know if they got more than that. But 
we always talk about uh, $25 and a half tank of gas. There was a day that somebody like myself could go to Washington Road, pick up a not a master's ticket, but a practice round ticket for like 20 bucks. And I remember this, and that's back in 1993, um, because I was a big fan of John Daly. He would have been the Cinderella story. He was there that day. Uh, Greg Norman was the Cinderella story back in 1981. But just your average folk could go there and grab a practice round ticket. Now think about that place now. They got that doggone Berkman's place where you have to have $6,000 to get into that little uh, government lobbyist type deal that's going on there. But anybody, if you ever get a chance, some form or fashion, if you truly want to witness uh, the beauty of the nature and the landscape of God, that is the place you want to go. Y'all have a good weekend. Thank you, David. Appreciate it, my man. You know, I'll say this. I mean, I don't know what it feels like to stand on sacred ground. I mean, I, I have no idea. My parking spot at Gamecock Park's about as sacred as it gets. <laughs> you know, the, the the public access of the beach in Litchfield is about as sacred as it gets. But there's an eeriness that, that you sense when you – and I'm not a golfer. I mean, I, I don't know what Ben Hogan did. I don't have any idea what Bobby it, Jones It's did. interesting you describe it as an eeriness. It, it's an eeriness. It's a specialness. Well, I mean, to me, I mean, as someone who has always strove – I mean, I strive for perfection. I hardly ever get there. I probably never will. But in certain moments of my life, I feel like we nailed it. You know, doing the radio show, running for office, running a business, being a husband, being a parent. I mean, there, there are certain moments in your life – that you look back on and say, wow, I mean, that, that was pretty special. I mean, I, you know, I felt exactly the way I wanted to feel. The words came out exactly the way I wanted the words to feel. Uh, you know, a dinner with your wife, a conversation with your kid. There are certain moments in our lives that just feel different. And I'm telling you, when you walk into those gates on that property, that there's a, a, a sensibility that you have that your own you're at a very, very different place, obviously, than the Olive Garden outside uh, the front door. We'll take a break. We'll be back in just a few moments. My, my father and grandfather would always say, hard days work, kill that man. <laughs> <laughs> when I think of John Kerry, hard days work, kill that man. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's one thing for a man to become wealthy marrying a woman, right? A woman with wealth. It's another thing for a man to marry a woman of wealth who married someone of wealth. You, you see where I'm headed? Yeah. I mean, it's almost the second generation thing. Um, marrying one of the Walton heirs is one thing, right? I mean, the family made the money. But when he married Teresa Hines, he married someone whose family didn't make the money, but she married someone whose family uh, didn't make the money. Talk about a freeloader. <laughs> anyway, um, yeah, John Kerry, the hardest working man. I guess it's Kerry, Springsteen, James Brown, who am I missing, Rev? Yeah, the hardest worker. Yeah, some of the hardest workers you know in the entertainment, because that's what he is. I mean, Kerry's an entertainer. He's not a serious person. I mean, he considers himself a serious person, and if you don't, you're a buffoon. But he's flying around the you know the world on a private jet, Davos and and elsewhere, you know, explaining how. I mean, think about this, guys. I mean, we live in America. I mean, if you don't believe we're in decline, we pay attention to what John Kerry says about the future of the climate 
on the planet Earth. I sure don't. I mean, we're not talking about the international planetary. I mean, we're not talking about the so, so some expert in the field of of uh, you know meteorology or, or weather or or um, what about dynamic modeling? I mean, there, there are a lot of things out there that there are a lot of people that we should pay attention to. But John Kerry is a former senator who married into money, who jets around explaining what the temperature of the planet Earth will be 100 years from now, and damn, some people don't believe him. <laughs> well, what did he say recently? He said, we special people in this place at this time are saving the he, planet. He basically said, I mean, his exact word, you ready? It's almost an extraterrestrial sort of thing. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, he's he E.T. He said it with a straight face. Yeah, I mean, he's E.T. <laughs> Phone home. <laughs> Mm, that's a good that's a good list uh, th- thank you sir appreciate that um that's a good list yeah that's a very good list so we did something a couple of weeks back about you know songs we like to sing over. i'll tell you what happened so so i read an ap report the the morning before we did a show that and it was just like this but I, mean, I can't remember it verbatim but mitch mcconnell 81 fell and hurt himself at a fundraiser on his behalf of the Senate Leadership Fund at the Waldorf Astoria in Washington, D.C. And I said, if you want an all-encapsulating commentary, that's it. Mitch McConnell, 81, <laughs> falls down. Let me too damn old to be in office. 81 falls down at a fundraiser on his behalf at the Waldorf Astoria. And I said, um, that's almost as good as standing on a corner in Winslow, Arizona. Such a fine sight to see. Um, it's it's Just like perfect. Yeah, write me a narrative of everything wrong with Washington, and that's kind of where it um where it came from. So um yeah, but that, that that's a really really. Re- I'm thinking about the songs that I like singing a uh, singing along with. Uh, there are a lot of them. I mean, they, they, my wife accuses me of singing along, but not knowing the words, and especially me. some of the um some of the classics. <laughs> Let's go to another um, whiner. No more. Okay, that's it. And it's not really a whiner line. It's more of a commentary line. Um, I mean, obviously, the rant whine, something that gripes you, bothers you, some pet peeve you have, we would encourage, um, you know, that for public edification. But um, but identifying the songs you like singing along with is not necessarily uh, uh, a whine exactly. or, a, or, or a rant. Now, all comments are welcome on the whiner. Uh, and, and there's a scene in one of these movies. I'm trying to think. It's a, it's a Tom Cruise movie uh, where they're singing – one of these great classics and nobody knows the word. So it might be um, Benny and the Jets by Elton John. That mm. There's there's a movie scene somewhere. They get real inebriated and they're having a big time and they're all gathered around the piano. Nobody knows. Everybody knows the song, but nobody knows the words. There's a good trivia question. That wouldn't be a trivia question, a debate topic. What is the most popular song of which nobody knows the words? <laughs> 
Well, I think the most misunderstood words are from blinded by the light. Well, yeah. No, yeah. That, that's, but that, that's not it. You know, I guess it would have been Manford Man made that a very popular yeah. song. I mean, that was a big, big hit. Big hit. Yeah, and it's not Madman Drummers, Bummers, Indians in the Summer, and a Teenage Diplomat in the Mumps with the Mumps. No, in the Bumps with the Mumps with the Adolescent Punks. Waiting. What, what's, what is it? Well, I, the, the line I'm thinking is like wrapped up like a deuce. Yeah, yeah well, that's the line. That's but why the do most... you go to the gutter? I mean, why, why are no, you? No, I said deuce. Deuce. That's the word, right? But, that's but, the actual lyric. But what did but it's um, misunderstood? I guess deuce is, is, is it misunderstood <laughs> yeah, or I, not? I don't know. Okay, let's, See, let's I guess do that's this. kind of the mystery around. Well, let, the let's do this real song, quick. Right? Uh, <laughs> hold on, hold on, hold on. I want to make sure I get it right because you've got you, me. Um, what do you mean gutter? I mean, I, I thought I had. I thought I remember the. Already, yeah, revved up like a deuce. Another runner in the night. Madman drummers, bummers, Indians in the summer with a teenage diplomat in the dumps with the mumps as the adolescent pumps his way into his hat with a boulder on my shoulder, feeling kind of older. I tripped the merry-go-round with this very unpleasing sneezing and wheezing. The calliope crashed to the ground and then blinded by the light. I have no idea. I mean, what is that? I mean, is that... Is that I have no idea? Is that you have words, no idea? I have no what idea. What I mean, is that wordsmithing? Yeah, that's kind of poetry. Well, I, I don't know what it is. It's um, it's 1976. Yeah. <laughs> so and I guess um, and then the yeah, Man for Man Earth Band made it a hit in 1976. So so that yeah, everybody knows the beat to that song, right? Mm-hmm. But I doubt very seriously if you know the words to that song, you're living a miserable existence. There, there are a lot more productive things to do with your time than knowing the words to, to blinded by, and by the way, I'll, I'll say you, you quoted those words before you looked up the, looked them well, up. I quoted some of them. Yeah. I, I knew it's bad man, drummers, bummers, any in summer and a teenage dimple exactly. and the dumps with the mumps at the adolescent. I mean, I knew that, uh, but I'd forgotten with a bolt on my shoulder, feeling kind of old. I tripped the merry-go-round with this very unpleasing sneezing and wheezing the Goliath <laughs> crashed to the ground. No clue. No nope. clue what any of that means. None at all. We'll take a break. We'll be back in just a few moments. Madman drummers, bombers, and Indians in the summer with a teenage diplomat. In the dumps with the mumps as the adolescent pumps his way into his hat. With a boulder on my shoulder, feeling kind of older, I strip the merry-go-round. With this very unpleasing sneezing and wheezing, the calliope crashed to the ground. Some old hot hat shot was in for hot spots, snapping his fingers, clapping his hands. Maybe you know, I have no clue. I mean, I'm, I'm as big a Springsteen fan as you know. I have no clue. I just know when to say blinded by the light, mm. and I'll say it as loudly 
and proudly as I can. But the others, I don't have any idea uh, what he's trying to say or what he's trying to convince or what he's trying to uh, – the, the wordsmithing of Springsteen at its finest or its worst, depending and, on what your, what your take is. And when I hear – Bruce's version of his song, it just reminds me of how much better the Manford Man version is. <laughs> it is what it is. Yep. I get it. Let's go to the phone. Joe in Florence. Hello, Joe. Um, yeah, guys, I'm a big Bruce fan, too. And, and I remember reading either an interview or maybe in his biography where he explained what he was trying to do in Blinded by the, the Light. He was kind of topped, trying to top Bob Dylan. Uh, Bob Dylan was a big influence of his. And uh, Dylan had written some song, I can't remember the name of it, you know, Johnny's in the Basement, Thinking About the Government. And, and Bruce said that he, he wrote that whole song with a rhyming dictionary in his lap, trying to outdo Dylan uh, after Dylan had kind of set the standard for that um, rambling uh, rhyme. <laughs> so that's at least the reason he did it. I don't know what the meaning of it, though. <laughs> good deal. Trying right. to trying to out Dylan Dylan. Good, <laughs> good luck with that. Um, yeah, I, I just got a text, D-R-U-G-S. Uh, that that's how, that's how that that comes about. It's just I mean you know these guys. Uh, how do you? I mean you and I articulate our way a certain or our message a certain way. Some of these um, songwriters that some call geniuses and wordsmith and poets and you know speak to the consciousness of mankind. They express themselves in a very unique and unusual way. Let's go to the phone. Will in Fayetteville. Good morning. Good morning, gentlemen. How are you today? We're well. How are you? I'm doing fine. So I I got a song that uh, that's definitely not an an art song for sure. But if you sit back and you listen to these words, how poignant they are to our fight in most ways. Um, man, you guys got to play this every once in a while, and it's called uh, "Waiting on the World to Change." John Mayer. John Meyer, Waiting John on Mayer. the World to Change. Big hit song. Yeah, okay, yep. okay. Well, and it's, oh man, it, it, you are going to upset Jeff, and you are going to upset the liberals, because that, that song kind of came out, if I remember, and maybe the Rev will have to hit me on this, because he's the radio guy, maybe the Obama years, they might have even played it a lot. But if you listen to the first verse and the second verse, and, and kind of the chorus in between about a minute and a half, it is so poignant to what we're fighting for these days. Thank you, sir. Appreciate that. You know, the good fight is, is an honorable cause. I mean, it really and truly is. But I got to confess with you. I mean, I've, I've never misled our listeners. I've always tried to say what, what I believe and think. If I had enough money, I don't know that I'd be up for the fight. I mean, you've heard me say I'd go off to Wyoming somewhere. I mean, I know it's cold in Wyoming. I'd come back to somewhere else during the summer. But if I had blank you money and I didn't have to worry at all about the transactional nature of my life and keeping my head above water and keeping my bills paid and being a productive, independent member of society, which I take a lot of pride in that, being a productive, independent member of society. If I had $100 million, we, Rev and I were talking about what we'd do if we won the billion-dollar lottery. And I'm talking about screw you money. I'm not talking about enough money to live comfortably. I'm talking about enough money to never make another dollar and do anything you want. I'm not sure I'm up for the fight. I mean, I don't like admitting that. I really and truly would rather my mind take me to another place. But but if I had $100 million in the bank, I would probably find me a ranch in Wyoming with about a two-mile driveway, and I'd say, hey, good luck with it. You know, I, I'm done. I mean, I, I've given it all I've got. 
I feel like I'm losing. It's a little bit like Limbaugh said. I mean, the late Rush Limbaugh once said that he feels like a miserable failure because the nation continues to creep closer and closer to liberal policy and, and socialism, kind of an anti-capitalist stance. And, um, and I get it. I mean, I certainly understand it. Um, and as you get older, you just aren't sure the fight is quite worth it. But persevere. Keep plugging along. Talk tomorrow.